0: President Biden is making a national address tonight about the recent mass shootings and is calling on Congress to act on gun violence prevention. Meanwhile, one of the teachers killed by the gunman in Texas called her husband, the Uvalde school's police officer, after she'd been shot. This and other details raise questions about the police response to the shooting. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida, led teenagers in Montana to push for gun reform.
1: The ultimate message that we were trying to convey was that we were terrified to go to school and that we didn't feel safe there and that we wanted the people who present to be in charge to do something
0: about it. Four years later, one of those young activists reflects on a failed effort. Massachusetts is getting federal pandemic relief dollars to fight homelessness. Well, here are some advocates who want to make sure the money makes a real difference. These stories and Wall Street numbers are next. It's
2: 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden is scheduled to address the nation tonight about the recent series of mass shootings across the United States. The Gun Violence Archive reports that more than 200 mass shootings involving four or more people have occurred this year alone. One of the latest happening in Oklahoma. Police in Tulsa say the man who shot four people then himself at a hospital building yesterday was a disgruntled patient of one of his victims. Chris Polanski of member station KWGS has details.
3: Tulsa Police Chief Wendell Franklin said the shooter, 45-year-old Michael Lewis, was targeting a surgeon who recently operated on his back. That surgeon, another doctor, a receptionist, and a patient were all killed. Franklin says Lewis bought the semi-automatic handgun and AR-15-style rifle he used in the killings on Sunday and just before the shooting yesterday, respectively.
4: The information that we have at the current time is that they were legally purchased firearms. Uh, one purchased uh, an hour and some change before the actual shooting event took place and the other purchased three days before the shooting took place.
3: Franklin said the shooter took his own life as officers approached. For NPR News, I'm Chris Polanski in Tulsa.
2: The 18-year-old man accused of killing 10 black people at a Buffalo grocery store has entered a not guilty plea on charges of domestic terrorism and first degree murder. The charges stem from the shooting at a Topps grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo last month. The domestic terrorism charge accuses Peyton Gendron of killing, quote, because of the perceived race and or color of his victims. He is being held without bail. Funerals continue in Texas for more of the 19 children and two teachers shot dead last week by 18-year-old Salvador Ramos. NPR's Laurel Wamsley has more from Uvalde.
5: On this day, three of those killed in their classrooms are laid to rest in Uvalde, where the shooting has left residents in grief and anger. Eliana Torres was 10 years old. She was both silly and nurturing, her family says. She loved to play softball and make people laugh. Nevaeh Elisa Bravo had the same birthday as Eliana. She is survived by two brothers and a sister, as well as her parents. Miranda Gail Mathis had just turned 11. Her family says she was a smart and shy tomboy who loved unicorns and mermaids. 80 miles east in San Antonio, hospitals continue to treat five people wounded in the shooting. Laurel Walmsley, NPR News, Uvalde.
2: The White House coordinator on COVID-19 response says vaccines may become available as soon as the end of this month. For children six months to five years of age, Dr. Ashish Shah says advisors to the FDA will be meeting within weeks to decide whether to recommend the shots for younger kids. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up 435 points, ending at 33,248. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBURM Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA says it's working to determine what caused the collision of two Green Line trains near Government Center last night. Four trolley operators were hurt and went to the hospital. One remains hospitalized. No passengers were hurt. Service was shut down on parts of the Green and Blue lines until about 2 this afternoon because of the collision. The T says the drivers involved are on paid administrative leave while it investigates the crash. Hot times at the Garden for the Green tonight. Celtics start up the NBA Finals on the road in San Francisco against the Golden State Warriors. Celtics fans can watch game one outside at Fennel Hall in Boston. The city is providing a big screen TV that will allow several hundred fans to watch together. Daniel Lander is senior advisor to Mayor Michelle
6: Wu. First come first serve to get the best seat but it's a nice spot. There's a lot of great room to get a perfect angle to cheer on Jalen Brown and the whole
0: team. The screen will be located at Samuel Adams Park right next to the Adams statue. The city says it's looking to host viewing parties for each of the game games in the finals. Somerville city leaders say they aim to end drug overdose deaths once a so called supervised consumption site opens in the city. WBR's Martha Biebinger reports.
7: Somerville is in the process of choosing a location for a clinic where people addicted to drugs could use while monitored by health professionals who could reverse an overdose. Last night at a community forum, Mayor Katiana Ballantyne described a, quote, vision zero, where the city stops losing 15 to 20 residents a year.
8: A vision towards comprehensive services, public health solutions, and most of all, a future
9: with zero fatal overdoses.
7: Two supervised consumption sites in New York City have been open for six months with no overdose deaths. A bill that would let Somerville proceed is stalled on Beacon Hill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: Dank weather through the evening and overnight tonight in the mid-50s tonight. Tomorrow showers are likely up until noontime, then clouds remain for the day. Temperatures in the low 60s, looks like sunshine, highs in the 70s over the weekend. This is WBUR 62
2: degrees at 406. WBOR supporters include LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
11: In Uvalde, Texas, we continue to learn new details about what happened inside Robb Elementary School after a gunman entered a fourth grade classroom and killed 19 students and two teachers last week. We are learning today that one of those teachers called her husband from inside the classroom after she had been shot. Her husband is an officer with the school district's police force. It's a detail raising yet more questions about the botched law enforcement response to this shooting. And for more, we're joined uh, from Uvalde by NPR's Adrian Florido. Hey, Adrian.
12: Hi, Mary Louise.
11: Hey, okay, tell me more about this phone call. This is from a teacher inside the classroom after she had been shot.
12: Right, from Eva Mireles. She was one of the two co-teachers in this classroom. And after she was shot, she called her husband, Ruben Ruiz, who is an officer for the Uvalde School's police department. Uh, at some point, he was outside the school, but he couldn't get, it, get in. Uh, and we now know, of course, that neither his wife, Miss Mireles, nor her co-teacher inside that classroom, Irma Garcia, survived the shooting.
11: Yeah. Do we know what she said in this call?
12: Well, I've been speaking with people close to these families, uh, and they tell me that Eva Mireles called her husband and told him that her co-teacher, Irma Garcia, was dead and that she had been shot and badly injured and that she needed help immediately.
11: Uh, I mean, it's such a sad detail. Explain why this is such an important detail, though, for the investigation.
12: Well, it's yet another example, Mary Louise, in this string of them that we have now, of of these pleas for help that were coming from inside uh, these classrooms. Because aside from this call from Eva Mireles, there were 911 calls from children inside that were coming into 911 for about an hour. And what police have said about their response to this shooting is that the officers outside the classroom waited about an hour before moving in and killing the gunman because they didn't realize children and teachers were at risk inside. Uh, The incident commander who held officers back was Pete Arredondo, he's the chief of the school district police force. So now there's this question, how did he not know that one of his officers had gotten a call from his wife inside? Uh, And how was he not learning about these 911 calls that were coming from inside the classroom?
11: How was he not learning about these 911 calls? I mean, what, What are officials now saying about that?
12: Well, the various police agencies that responded to this shooting are basically saying nothing now. They've they've sort of shut down. Uh, But today we heard from a state senator, uh, Roland Gutierrez, a Democrat, that the information that was coming in from these 911 calls was being communicated not to the school's police chief who took command of this incident, but instead to the Uvalde City Police Department.
13: 911 calls were being received by a different entity. I felt that that was important enough to know here, not because I want to blame that entity, There was error at every level.
12: There's still a lot we're trying to find out, Mary Louise, about why this communication broke down.
13: Yeah, Uh,
11: the official story just keeps shifting and shifting. What are you hearing from families of the victims?
12: They're really angry about this. Um, I spoke with uh, Angela Salazar. Her son was in the school and made it out alive, thankfully, but her nephew was killed. And she said that these shifting narratives are making it hard to grieve these deaths.
14: I'm, like, lost at words that I don't even know where to start because i don't know to blame the upd i don't know to blame the first responders i don't know i don't know i'm just like lost i have a lot of hate and i have a lot of anger because these kids should be living their life
12: this is a small town mary louise so many of these families are related by blood and marriage and a lot of what they're learning about what happened inside is coming from the children who survived
11: and piers adrian florido in uvalde texas
10: thank you thank you The United Kingdom is celebrating Queen Elizabeth's seven decades on the throne. The Platinum Jubilee runs through Sunday, and it may be the most that Britons see of their monarch in months. That's because at 96 years old, she's been retreating from public life and leaving more of her duties to her heir, Prince Charles. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London.
15: Today, Prince Charles stepped in for his mother, inspecting the troops at the Queen's official birthday parade, known as Trooping the Color. It was part of a generational transition that has been in the works since at least last year. There's just one problem. While the Queen remains hugely popular here, her son is not. Yesterday, I walked around the lawns near Buckingham Palace gauging opinion. Anna Coughlin was sitting on a blanket, having a picnic with her mother and three young children. How do you feel about the Queen?
16: She's a treasure, she.
15: (laughs) I'm curious, how do you feel about Prince Charles?
7: Um,
16: he's all right,
7: yeah.
16: <laughs> he's not as charismatic as she is, you know, because she led the country through so many huge things. Charles is nice, and I think he's got good attitudes to sustainability and the environment, but he's sort of second fiddle to her, so... think <laughs> he's super old already.
15: <laughs> Indeed, Charles is already 73. Anna Coughlin's views are pretty representative. About 80% of Britons see the Queen positively, according to polls, while only about one-third want Charles to become king. Many people remain unhappy with Charles because of how he handled his first marriage. Max Hastings is the former editor
6: of Britain's The Daily Telegraph and The Evening Standard. The legacy of the whole Diana catastrophe, um, it does go very deep. And the image that Diana passed on to the world about the Prince of Wales is not a very attractive image. It was. image? It was an image of a very selfish quirky weird man who couldn't understand for the life of him why he was expected to give up his long-term mistress just because he'd married a young girl after charles married diana he maintained an
15: affair with his old flame camilla parker bowles who was also married as diana once put it there were three of us in this marriage so it was a bit crowded the couple finally divorced in 1996 prince charles married camilla in 2005. The prince does have many supporters. One is Sue Dowse. She pitched a tent yesterday near the palace to ensure a view of today's parade. Dowse cites Charles' long environmental record. The prince has embraced sustainability, biodiversity, and organic farming for decades.
17: A lot of people have ridiculed him over the years, but actually when you look at some of the things with his environment, he was really right at the forefront of some of that. I think it's gonna be a very hard act for him to follow the queen, and it would be very hard for anybody.
15: Many royal analysts say Prince Charles should make the environment the signature issue of his reign. That could help keep the monarchy relevant and connect with younger generations who view the institution more skeptically. Last fall, the prince addressed the Global Climate Change Summit in Glasgow.
6: The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how devastating a global cross-border threat can be. Climate change and biodiversity loss are no different. In fact, they pose an even greater existential threat to the extent that we have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing.
15: But when the Prince has expressed some of his views to British officials, he's been accused of trying to influence government policy. In the 2000s, he sent private memos urging officials to, among other things, reverse spending cuts on homeopathic medicine. He also requested funding for his own Afghan charity. Some thought he violated a fundamental rule that the monarchy stays out of politics. Again, Max
6: Hastings. There's nothing wrong with any private individual wanting to uh, support homeopathic medicine, but it was obviously completely constitutionally wrong for the Prince of Wales to use his influence in this way. Dominic Grieve served as Attorney General and defends the Prince.
12: I think the letters he was writing were absolutely in the public interest. They were expressions of his view based on his knowledge. And and it's important for ministers to have that. It wasn't telling ministers what to do. The prince's critics worry
15: he could become what they call an activist king, which they say could undermine the monarchy at a time when it won't enjoy the goodwill and public support that it has under the queen. Frank Langford, NPR News, Buckingham Palace.
11: Visit one of America's Chinatown neighborhoods and you might find yourself focusing on the vibrant street culture, but there are details you might miss. NPR's Jennifer Vanasco reports on an app that takes visitors around Manhattan's Chinatown in a new way through voices and oral histories.
16: Yeah, my mom is
18: from Taiwan. I think they were in an era where most people just thought that going to America would immediately mean prosperity. So that's a very kind of sad story.
19: That's from Family Association, a new app that helps visitors experience Chinatown in a different way. Using geolocation, listeners can follow the included map and wander around. And as they move, the soundscape changes. Composer George Si Lam created the app, and he walked me around the neighborhood to show me how it works.
3: I am thinking that if I embed these stories within music and also within a place, you start connecting with, oh, well, I've walked by this building so many times, and now I can associate with this voice that's talking about how this person came here or who their grandfather was.
19: For the oral histories, Lamb interviewed five Chinese Americans who grew up around the country, and he set their stories to music.
3: One of the challenges of oral history is that sometimes they just get locked up in an archive. I think partly it's because it's hard to relate to some of these stories, right? They can be very personal. His
20: distant aunt worked in a garment factory, but he didn't know which ones. So he went knocking to each, knocking on the door for every garment factory that he could.
19: Central to the map are five Chinese family associations. They're civic associations that, since the 1800s, have connected new immigrants with those already here. The audio soundscape centers around them, just like the associations are a center for immigrants and their children to connect with each other. If you're near the Wong Family Association, You'll hear this.
20: Just a really good access point, I think, for Chinese immigrants who come from a more old generation and kind of younger Chinese Americans trying to understand it and maybe pick up a little bit of those traditions and pass it on.
19: Lam says he wanted to use the piece itself as a kind of family association to bring people's memories and experiences of Chinatown together in one place. Jennifer Venasco, NPR News, New York.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR
0: in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Big gains on Wall Street across the board today. The Dow jumped 435 points, one and a third percent, to close at 33,248. S&P grew by more than one and three quarters percent to close at 4,177. And the Nasdaq added almost two and three quarters percent to cut a two-day losing streak. NASDAQ closed at 12317 Price of gasoline in Massachusetts has set a record for a second day in a row. Today's survey by AAA Northeast has the average price at $4.79 a gallon. That's up three cents from yesterday, nearly 60 cents higher than one month ago. Meanwhile, diesel prices in the state dropped by a penny since yesterday to $6.24 a gallon. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.19.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings
0: at pacaso.com. Coming to WBUR City Space Monday, June 6th, reporter Daryl C. Murphy in conversation with hip-hop historian Jan Churnis on his book on seminal music, producer Jay Dilla. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events.
18: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live now through Sunday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Arlington Chamber and Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Enjoy Arlington's Cultural District with shopping, dining, theaters, and more. Details at visitarlingtonma.org. Cloudy tonight. Showers and fog. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should make it to the low
0: 60s once again. Showers, gray skies all day long, and sunshine over the weekend. This is WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services. Member NYSE. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com/slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is all things considered from NPR News.
11: I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Events over the weekend have prompted a new look in Israel at how it should handle Jewish extremists. That is from Sunday, the chant there, Death to Arabs, it rang out from nationalists marching through the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem's old city. They went on to harass and assault Palestinians who live there. NPR's Daniel Estrin witnessed this. He is in Jerusalem and joins us now to talk about whether Israel might take new steps to control these extremists. Hey, Daniel.
21: Hi, Mayor Louise.
11: I want to hear a little more. I want to understand more what exactly you saw on Sunday.
21: I saw groups of Israeli teens roaming the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. They assaulted Palestinians. They taunted them. I also saw some Palestinians curse at Israelis, too. Yeah. And that was for hours, even before the flag parade began. I then saw tens of thousands of Israelis marching through an area that's usually a bustling gathering place for Palestinians. There were all kinds of people, mainly fairly mainstream Orthodox Jewish groups, um, chanting religious songs. But then, the most common chants that I heard were "Death to Arabs," "Mayor Village Burn," um, an insult of the Prophet Muhammad. I saw a lot of T-shirts with rifles inside stars of David. I watched a mob lurch at a Palestinian video journalist try to grab his equipment. Reporters from the BBC were also assaulted too. And these are the kinds of scenes we see. Every single year when this march takes place, last year there was so much consternation and threats of violence from Hamas that the the march was actually cancelled. But it was too late. Hamas launched rockets and the Gaza war began. Huh.
11: Well, so that prompts a question. If, (laughs) If last year a war began, and I know in years past this march has sparked violence, why did Israel allow it to go ahead this year?
21: the israeli prime minister naftali bennett says he did not want to give in to threats from hamas this year he said it was important to demonstrate israel's control over east jerusalem which is predominantly palestinian he considers the parade on sunday a success no deaths and he said that the ugly scenes were the work of a small minority he ordered police to prosecute people in reality police only arrested two israelis that day israel is now singling out two far-right groups as being responsible for the extremism.
11: Yeah, I was going to ask how organized this is. Who are these two far-right
21: groups? Well, they're both anti-Arab groups, and the most prominent one is called Lehavah, It's a group that's against romantic relationships between Arabs and Jews, Uh, a lot of teens in this group. The defense minister is saying that these groups should be outlawed. But there have been calls to outlaw these groups for years, and Israel has not. So, you know, Palestinians and Israeli liberal groups say that the government does not take Jewish extremists seriously. Israel, of course, points to Palestinian extremist groups, Hamas, Islamic Jihad which have committed deadly attacks on Israelis. And Israel says Palestinian officials have not done enough to rein them in. But, you know, Palestinian property is vandalized. Israeli settlers in the West Bank attack Palestinians. Very few prosecutions against Israelis. Hmm.
11: And this is a big question, but what is fueling this extremism?
21: There are bigger trends in Israeli society. Um, The far right is represented in parliament. Uh, They conflate Arab citizens, 20 percent of the population, frequently with terror. And I spoke to the former foreign minister in Israel, Shlomo Ben-Ami, and he said what we saw on Sunday was not just a couple of extremist groups.
22: I am ashamed. I am ashamed. Jewish supremacism, this is what it is. I think it is a direct representation of
3: Israeli power. I have no doubt about it.
21: Now, Mary Louise, I should let you know that there are, of course, Israeli groups trying to do the opposite and promote reconciliation. There was a group handing out flowers to Palestinians the day of the march in Jerusalem. And, you know, I heard one story recently about high schoolers that were from a Jewish Orthodox high school shouting at Arab elementary school kids in a public park, calling on them to leave the country. And you know what? The Jewish principal came to the Arab school, apologized and sent the kids on a free trip to the zoo.
11: And Pierre's Daniel Estrin reporting there on so much complexity
10: in Jerusalem. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. Teens trying to escape the constant barrage of advertising and celebrities on Instagram haven't found a new place to go. It's called Be Real. And as the name suggests, it's trying to create a more authentic social media experience. No filters, no editing. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen looks at how Be Real is trying to reinvent the way young people connect with friends.
23: Marissa Omaki is an 18-year-old in the San Francisco Bay Area who has had it with Instagram.
24: For the longest time, I would always compare myself to like these influencers like, oh, how come like I can't be like that? You know, like I want to be like that, but I'll never like get on the same tier as them. It really does get to like a lot of people's brains.
23: So when Omaki heard about the French app Be Real, she was eager to try it out. Here's how it works. You only post once a day when prompted. You have just two minutes to take a photo. The app snaps a selfie and whatever's in front of you at once, all without filters and unedited.
24: When I'm on BeReal, like I'm not really expecting like, oh, I'm in Hawaii. I'm with I'm with my hot boyfriend. Like I'm just kind of expecting like someone on their couch. And
23: that's often what it is. The mundane motions of life. People
24: walking their dog,
23: people staring at a computer, people eating lunch. Omaki's best friend, Kia Reddy, chimes in to say that so much of apps like Instagram and Snapchat feels like a performance. People bragging about vacations or cool parties or who they're hanging out with. On B-Real, there's less fear of missing out. A FOMO-free zone.
16: We're not performing anymore. Most
24: of the time, like most of my B-Reals are either me sitting at my desk doing homework or me at work.
23: That's refreshing to researchers who study social media's impact on child development. UCLA's Yalda Yules says apps like Instagram and TikTok, where influencer culture thrives, can harm teens' mental health, with teens constantly comparing themselves to the bodies and styles of professional models.
25: Social comparison is normal, like it's something that every teenager and every person needs to learn to know how to act in the world. But on social media, you know, it's, it's social comparison on steroids.
23: Yule says there are obviously plenty of ways to not be real on Be Real. It's social media after all. But she says an app that pushes people to share photos of what they're really doing and what they really look like is a welcome development.
25: I applaud anything that helps young people understand that a filtered approach to life is not an authentic and healthy approach to life.
23: Right now, if you go to someone's BeReal profile, you can't see who they follow or how many followers they have. The profiles are totally blank. Social media without a popularity contest. The app also doesn't have advertising. Back in the Bay Area, Reddy wonders how BeReal can stay this way forever since eventually the app is going to have to figure out a way to make money. How will the app do that while also staying an intimate, chill place to share photos with friends?
16: If there's like a feature where like celebrities start getting on the app
20: and they're like, oh, you can pay to see the celebrities be real. I'm going to kind of
24: like back away, I think a little bit.
23: Be Real is trying to be a social media app to give everyone a break from social media apps. Silicon Valley sees it as maybe the next big thing. Already the same venture capitalists who backed Instagram and Twitter are funding Be Real. Of course, there's another way to take a break from social media. Try logging off. Bobby Allen, NPR News.
11: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This
0: is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, President Biden tonight will take to the airwaves to speak about guns in America and press lawmakers to take action to combat the epidemic of gun violence. We'll present his comments live at 7.30. And coming up on All Things Considered, NPR's Bob Montella remembers the first film he ever saw in a theater and what it meant to him. This is WBUR. It's 4.30.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com. Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th semesteroff.com And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com slash gig.
10: I've been a public radio listener for over 40 years. My name is Nancy and I donated my 2001 Volvo station wagon to public radio. It was really hard to say goodbye. I love Morning Edition and All Things Considered and it was kind of a no-brainer to give the car to public radio.
24: Learn more at wbur.org slash cars.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden will address the recent spate of gun violence in the U.S. during an address to the nation tonight. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre says Biden will once again turn up the pressure on Congress to pass what he calls common-sense gun laws.
7: He has been crystal clear uh, that Congress needs to act. The president has done more through executive action, as you've heard us say, than any other president in, this, in his first year, in their first year uh, in history. And the president has directed his staff to continue to explore additional actions we can take, but we
25: can't do this alone, and it's time for Congress to act. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says lawmakers will vote next week on legislation addressing gun violence. Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee Committee are working up a series of bills to strengthen the nation's gun laws, including a federal ban on assault-style weapons. New data from Gallup finds public support for abortion rights at the highest level in more than 25 years. NPR Sarah McCammon reports that shift comes as the U.S. Supreme Court prepares to release what's expected to be a landmark decision rolling back abortion rights.
10: The survey data was collected just after the publication in early May of a leaked draft opinion that would overturn the Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion nationwide in 1973. In the days after that leak, Gallup says 55% of Americans describe themselves as pro-choice, the highest number since 1995. 39% described themselves as pro-life. And framed as a moral rather than political or legal question, for the first time, a majority of Americans, 52 percent, said they believe abortion is morally acceptable. Sarah McCammon, NPR News.
25: On Wall Street, the Dow was up 435 points. This is NPR. The 16th Van Cliburn International Piano Competition is underway in Fort Worth, Texas. Phil Zeebel with member station KERA reports 30 young musicians are vying for cash prizes worth hundreds of thousands of dollars.
26: Because the pandemic pushed this once-every-four-year contest back a year, this competition falls on the 60th anniversary of the first-ever Cliburn competition in Fort Worth. Cliburn Foundation President Jacques Marquis says the world has vastly changed, but some aspects of this contest have not.
13: 60 years ago, there was two main mandates. First, helping young musicians, and second, sharing the music with the largest audience possible. 60 years after that, we still do the same.
26: But these days, at least 10 million listeners are expected to hear the pianist live across 170 countries, in addition to those in the new concert hall named for Van Cliburn. I'm Bill Zeebel in Fort Worth.
25: The Biden administration is revoking several restrictions on flights to Cuba. The decision ends a Trump-era ban on U.S. airline flights to Cuban airports other than the capital, Havana. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the move is intended to support the Cuban people and is in the interest of the United States. Recapping stocks on Wall Street today, the Dow up 435 points, the Nasdaq up 322. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston authorities and utility crews are investigating the cause of two explosions in manholes this morning in downtown Boston. A woman was taken to the hospital with burns. The explosions caused smoke to billow out of the manholes, shattered the window of an office building on High Street near Federal, and forced people inside two buildings to evacuate. Boston fire officials say elevated carbon monoxide levels were found inside those buildings. All four trolley uh, operators involved in a collision on the Green Line last night are on paid administrative leave, while the MBTA investigates the cause of the crash. The T's general manager says the four drivers were hurt. One of them is still in the hospital. No passengers were injured. WBR's Walter Worthman caught up with riders this afternoon to see how they're feeling about the second major collision on the Green Line in a year.
26: Green Line service between North Station and Lechmere resumed just before 2 this afternoon. Tyrone Innes was waiting for the train at Lechmere to go to Heath Street. He said he felt a bit nervous boarding the trolley after hearing about last night's crash.
27: I feel okay. I'll, I'll be cautious. I'll be Maybe I'll just sit down and not, not worry about standing up. Normally I just stand up and, and, and ride, but I'll, I'll be more conscious about what's going on.
26: The T is undergoing a federal safety review after a train dragged a passenger to his death on the red line in April and the driver of a green line train rear-ended another train at high speed last summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: Game one of the NBA finals between the Celtics and the Golden State Warriors is tonight in San Francisco. Meanwhile, the ticket reseller StubHub is reporting that seats for the first Celtics home game of the finals are already selling for an average of nearly $2,000. The game is next Wednesday at the TD Garden. Angel Calderon of Roslindale says he's planning to watch that game from home, but he's hoping his wife remembers his birthday's coming up.
15: My birthday's on Saturday, so who knows? Maybe I could get some tickets if I'm lucky enough, right? If you're watching this or hearing this, you know what to get me for my birthday now.
0: <laughs> the Celtics' first Finals appearance in 2010 begins tonight at 9 o'clock. It's 4.36. We're funded
2: by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC
0: clouds for another night and another day before June starts acting like June. Overcast tonight, some showers and fog right about the mid-50s. Tomorrow should make it to low 60s again. Showers, gray skies all day long. And then for the weekend, beautiful as sunshine moves in and temperatures move all the way up to the low 70s, both Saturday and Sunday.
10: This is WBUR.
11: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden has traveled recently to the sites of two mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. Last night, there was another in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was the 233rd mass shooting in the U.S. this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. And tonight, Biden will address the nation and once again call on Congress to act, despite years of inaction on this issue. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us now with a preview. Hi, Tam. Hi, Elsa. So what do you expect the president will be saying tonight? Like, what is the purpose of tonight's speech?
24: So this is an evening address after multiple high-profile mass shootings coming week after week. And he will be speaking directly to the American people about those tragedies and what he thinks should be done to prevent gun violence. But White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre made it pretty clear in the press briefing today that we shouldn't expect to see any major new announcements, for instance, on executive actions. And
7: we're constantly, constantly looking for for what else we can do. Uh, But, uh, again, tonight's speech is going to focus on what Congress needs to do and Congress' action, because
24: the president cannot do this alone. As she said, Biden just wants to get his voice out there to contribute to this conversation and use his presidential bully pulpit to press for action. And I have to say, he has been under a lot of pressure from gun safety advocates to do just that, to be more vocal, tighten the screws on Congress and, you know, not let these terrible shootings fall from the headlines without something
10: coming from it. Right. But but what specifically is he calling on Congress to do?
24: Well, what he's asking for isn't new uh, and isn't specific to the events of recent weeks. In fact, you can go back to his State of the Union address in March, which I did, uh, and hear a message quite similar to what I expect that we will hear tonight.
22: I ask Congress to pass proven measures to reduce gun violence. Pass universal background checks. Why should anyone on the terrorist list be able to purchase a weapon? Why? Why? ban assault
24: weapons with high-capacity magazines will open 100 rounds. In recent days, he has repeated his calls for expanding background checks for red flag laws to remove guns from the hands of people determined to be a danger to themselves or others, um, and promoting safe storage of weapons, but also banning assault weapons entirely.
10: Right. And I have heard him talking about this, but there are some fragile negotiations going on among lawmakers right now. And I'm pretty sure that most of these things that we've just mentioned that President Biden is interested in are not on the list of items in consideration on the Hill, right? Yeah.
24: uh, Let's start with the political reality here that most Republicans in Congress won't support any tightening of gun laws, uh, despite broad bipartisan public support. In the Senate, there are early bipartisan negotiations uh, happening now. They are talking about incentives to states to pass their own red flag laws, uh, school safety measures, maybe something about mental health. Uh, The negotiations are focused specifically on actions that could have helped prevent the mass shooting in Uvalde. Um, Karine Jean-Pierre was asked today about this, and, and she essentially said, it's fine if the president talks about something more ambitious than what the Senate is talking about. It's not like if they actually did pass something, he would uh, step away from it. Uh, he would be glad to sign something given this long uh, long inaction in Congress.
10: That is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you so much, Tam.
24: You're welcome. Well, the massacre
11: in Uvalde came just over four years after the one at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Back then, thousands of students across the country walked out of classes to demand action on guns and public safety. We caught up with one of the protesters who organized and brought a gun reform law to state lawmakers. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager reports.
20: Walkouts and demonstrations in 2018 after Parkland included this one in Montana.
28: We're tired of hearing that we're too young to ever make a change.
20: At the time, Clara McRae, a student at Capitol High School in Helena, said kids just wanted to be heard. I think a lot of the time...
1: The conversation just occurs between like adults and like opposing political parties and you never really get the opinion of like the kids and we don't know what we believe yet. So I think it's a lot easier for us to kind of come together and have respectful dialogue without getting angry. McCray also helped
20: form Helena Youth Against Gun Violence. They went to state lawmakers with what they thought was a pretty mild request. Make it a crime for an adult to leave a firearm accessible to a child. Democratic State Representative Mafi Funk carried their bill. We
18: know that Montanans are fabulously responsible and ethical gun owners. This just helps them think twice about gun storage. The bill
20: also would have required gun safety education to be taught in schools. Here's Clara McRae
1: testifying for it in 2019. Some will argue that this is unnecessary, saying that the safety curriculum already exists and is currently implemented. However, as a student finishing up my 12th year in the Helena School District, I can attest that this is absolutely false. Data from the RAND
20: Corporation show 64% of Montana homes have guns in them, the highest rate in the U.S. Fred Thomas was Montana's Republican Senate Majority Leader at the time.
29: That's the last thing we're going to do is go into people's homes and tell them how to take care of their own defense weapons.
20: The bill died. Now, three years later, after the shooting in Uvalde, McCray says it's up for debate whether pushing for that bill made a difference.
1: The ultimate message that we were trying to convey was that we were terrified to go to school and that we didn't feel safe there and that we wanted the people who we who present to be in charge to do something about it. And they ultimately did not.
20: Last year, Montana Republicans pushed to remove restrictions on firearms. They passed a bill expanding concealed carry of guns without a permit to almost anywhere in the state, including banks and bars. They also loosened rules for firearms on college campuses. That's currently tied up in court. Clara McCray is now 21 and studying political science and history at the University of Montana. She said hearing the news from Texas was heartbreaking.
1: It shows above all that the kids are not all right. And whether it be because of gun violence or poor mental health or whatever reason, children are clearly feeling as though they're not being protected and as though they're not safe at school. She says she's learned
20: that fear is the ruling emotion in America right now that beyond guns, America has a
1: problem with systemic violence. Violence and fear tends to breed more violence and fear. I don't know if there's any way to, like, regulate guns in this country at this point. Um, I think that well, the interest groups have made that pretty much impossible to do. It's just simply too polarized.
20: Four years ago, Clara McRae walked out of her high school classes after 17 people were killed at a high school in Florida. Now she says she isn't keeping up with the news about the Uvalde shooting in order to protect her mental health. For NPR News, I'm Shaylee Rager in Helena, Montana. <laughs>
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. With Memorial Day behind us, we are officially in the summer movie season, and there is no shortage of titles to choose from. But, you know, summer is known for a particular kind of movie, right? Think popcorn pictures, escapist films that may have laughs or tears along the way, but that end Happily, it's a formula that has served Hollywood well and that has also served to make a lot of people into superfans, including our critic, Bob Mondello. He now sees more than 300 movies a year, many of which do not have happy endings, but that suits him just fine. In this encore presentation, Bob remembers the moment it all began, his first trip to a movie theater.
30: I was nine. Come
17: on,
10: bucket,
8: mop, broom. Flora says, clean
30: up the room. A neighborhood theater in Bethesda, Maryland in 1959, a matinee crowded with zillions of kids discovering new things about a fairy tale we all thought we knew. And now to make a lovely dress, fit to grace a fair princess. The Disney Sleeping Beauty was different from the Brothers Grimm version. For one thing, the Disney animators reduced Princess Aurora's seven fairy godmothers to three, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. And Flora and Meriwether had very specific ideas about colors. Flora liked pink, Meriwether liked blue, and when they were magically creating Aurora's birthday dress... No,
21: not pink. Make it blue.
30: ...that caused problems.
10: Merryweather, make it pink.
30: They kept casting spells and blue and pink bolts of magic... Make it blue. ...some of which started shooting out the chimney like fireworks. Pink. I think the reason I remember this part is that at some point, both Flora and Meriwether cast a spell at the same moment, and the dress ended up splotchy and spoiled. If something like that had happened in my house, my brother and I would have gotten spanked. But then Maleficent showed up, and we forgot about colors and splotches for a while, and worried about curses and pricked fingers, and swords of truth and forests of thorns, and a huge dragon and kisses that awaken fairy princesses only to have the issue crop back up again at the very end, when Princess Aurora and her prince were dancing their way to Happily Ever After, fairy godmothers looking on.
0: Oh, I just
28: love happy endings. Yes, I do too. too.
2: blue.
30: I was worried that they'd splotch everything up again, but before they did, I turned to my mom and saw she had tears in her eyes. And I said... Mom, it's not sad. And she said, I'm crying because it's so happy. Which to a nine-year-old is nuts. Later, I would realize that Mom and Dad sometimes yelled at each other in real life, and I wasn't connecting that to the lovers on screen, though I guess Mom was. She knew then something I wouldn't learn till later, that visions are seldom all they seem. But that day, mixed messages were not what she wanted to impart at my first movie ever. So she blinked and said, Who wants ice cream? And I did. I'm Bob Mundell.
11: Today, Uvalde, Texas, is an overwhelmingly Mexican-American town. But even when it was a mostly white place, Robb Elementary, the site of last week's shooting massacre, was known as the school for Mexicans. And in 1970, it played a different role in Uvalde's history. The story of the Robb Elementary School walkout. This afternoon on our daily news podcast, consider this. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, housing advocates in Massachusetts say federal pandemic relief funds could go a long way in fighting homelessness. It's 449.
26: Hey, one way to get and keep new workers, what about paying their salaries while they train full time?
11: The thinking
1: was, why don't we work with our employees, build a sense of loyalty, and then we've got a workforce that's likely to stay with us in the long haul.
26: I'm Kyle Rizdahl, getting creative with your hiring practices next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on
0: 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Should stay breezy and damp for several more hours. Clouds hold on through the night tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow morning showers followed by just a lot of clouds. Highs in the low 60s. And then for the first weekend in June, sunshine Saturday. Breezy and milder should break into the 70s. A repeat of that on Sunday. Sunny and comfortable temperatures in the low 70s. Celtics get their chance to start tonight to win the 18th NBA title. Game 1 of the NBA Finals tips off at 9 o'clock tonight. Boston takes on the Golden State Warriors in the best of seven series. First, two games of the series are in San Francisco, then it moves to Boston for games three and four next week. The last time the Celts were in the NBA Finals was in 2010. This is WBUR.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating spring with their Crescent Ridge ice cream stand, now open year-round, extended seasonal hours at volantefarms.com, and tapas 529 in Melrose, Spanish and Mediterranean small plates and paellas, dinner Tuesday through Sunday, lunch and brunch on weekends. Private parties welcome.
4: The U.S. once enlisted the help of a cartoon parrot and Donald Duck to try and improve relations with Brazil.
18: Donald, I will show you the land of
31: the Samba. Samba?
27: Samba?
4: Today, the U.S. wants Brazil's help in confronting Russia but relations have Sour. Are there any lessons to be
13: learned from the 1940s animated effort? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News.
32: That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Ion Television Network, LeVar Burton hosts the Scripps National Spelling Bee Finals live, Thursday, June 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
0: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. People who work to fight homelessness in Massachusetts say there's never enough housing to go around. Now a group of advocates and service providers wants to make sure the state gets a big boost in supportive housing from federal pandemic relief funds. Late last year, Governor Charlie Baker signed a nearly $4 billion relief package into law. The money is coming from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act, known as ARPA. It includes $150 million for permanent housing with support services. Much of that will be for people who've been homeless or are vulnerable to housing insecurity. WBR's Lynn Jolliker tells us about efforts to make the money make a
14: real difference. The ARPA funds can go a long way in the fight against homelessness, according to Christy Staples.
8: It is the largest single infusion of funding for supportive housing specifically that the Commonwealth has received. So that alone is a game changer.
14: Staples is a vice president at United Way of Massachusetts Bay and Greater Merrimack Valley. She leads a loose coalition of more than 70 social service providers, advocates, developers and philanthropists. The group is working to develop a plan to scale up permanent supportive housing for people experiencing homelessness in Massachusetts. That's housing where case managers help tenants connect with services including mental health treatment, job training, and budgeting. Staples says the coalition asked for the ARPA funding for supportive housing and wants to make sure there's a vision for it so it has the greatest possible impact.
8: Without a strategy and really looking at the population that needs the housing and where the gaps are, we are not actually being strategic in ending homelessness. And it is a piecemeal approach for pockets of intervention that is not a comprehensive strategic approach.
14: One of the coalition's first priorities is to collect data on homelessness and housing need. Staples says the group wants to come up with a clear number of permanent supportive housing units that should be built in each region of the state. As of 2020, Massachusetts had about 8,600 units for unaccompanied adults who've been homeless and more than 1,700 for families coming out of homelessness. Staples says the state likely needs about 1,800 more supportive apartments for adults who are chronically homeless. The estimate for other populations, including families and youth, isn't clear. Social service leaders have long said they want a plan from the state to create a robust supply of permanent supportive housing.
8: I would say we've been able to accomplish a lot, but it did take a coalition to come together to say silence is not an option here.
14: No one from the State Department of Housing and Community Development would do an interview for this story. But a spokesperson says the agency has had an annual round of funding for permanent supportive housing developments since 2014. And early in the pandemic, it asked for innovative proposals to convert buildings such as motels or hotels into supportive housing. Advocate Joyce Tavon says providing some funding for individual projects isn't the same as creating a proactive statewide plan. Tavon is a policy director at the nonprofit Massachusetts Housing and Shelter Alliance.
33: We have an enormous crisis. We have such a housing crisis, such a scarcity of supply.
14: Tavon says an increase in street homelessness during the pandemic shows the state and every community need to break down barriers to housing development. People came from all over the region to a huge tent encampment near Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard in Boston, or Mass and Cass before the city cleared it out and got many people into treatment and housing.
33: We are dealing with a humanitarian disaster. Absolutely, we saw it with Mass and caste, but it's happening in other places, smaller versions of that encampment. So we need the state also to assist with how do we get municipalities to ease up on their restrictive zoning and not leaving it just to the kind of homeless service-slash-housing provider, like,
14: you go figure it out. Here's how the ARPA funding breaks down. $15 million is targeted to housing for people who've been living outdoors or in homeless shelters. $50 million is for supportive housing for people, including families, who are chronically homeless. $65 million is dedicated to affordable housing with services for those who fled domestic violence or human trafficking, or are State Department of Mental Health clients or seniors. The final $20 million will go toward supportive housing for veterans.
13: You can see we're going right down to the ground, right down to the studs, and we're rebuilding it.
14: John Yazwinski is president and CEO of Father Bills and Mainspring. The South Shore nonprofit shelters and houses people experiencing homelessness. The organization is about to finish converting a Brockton hotel into 69 units of permanent supportive housing. The state funded the project after putting out that call for innovative proposals in 2020. Gazwinski says more providers can create housing like this with the right resources and guidance in place. But, he says, that's just the beginning. They have to keep the housing going and keep tenants stable.
13: We've never had this opportunity. Having the capital, having that ARPA money is great, but we still need to see a commitment from the state about, like, how are we going to have the operating money and how are we going to have the services? As great as this project is, we were still begging for the operating subsidies, and we got it. And we're piecemealing the services from a variety of funding sources.
14: The state says this year, it funded services to turn 200 existing housing units into supportive housing. Meanwhile, Yazwinski points out the 69 new units in Brockton make only a dent in the need. He says for every five people who move out of his organization's mainspring shelter, six people come in looking for a bed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft. At home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com slash NPR. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces. From sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com.
0: Tonight's forecast, patchy drizzle at times, full rain at others, lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should remain wet for most of the morning, then just a lot of clouds around, rising to about 62. Clouds clear out just in time for the weekend. Saturday should bring in bright sunshine, temperatures in the low 70s, and then Sunday pretty much the same thing. Sunny and comfortable, highs in the low 70s. This is WBUR 57 degrees now.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Pops at Symphony Hall. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. BostonPops.org
34: I'm Midday host Jack Lepears, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Coming up, the mass shooting yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that killed five people. The gunman used a weapon that was apparently brand new. At 2 p.m. on
4: June the 1st, Mr. Lewis purchased a semi-automatic rifle from a local
13: gun store.
0: Less than three hours later, he started shooting. This is all things considered. The latest on the Tulsa shooting coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, the 18-year-old man accused of killing 10 black people at a Buffalo grocery store enters a not-guilty plea on charges of domestic terrorism and first-degree murder. More than two years into the pandemic, many workers who've worked remotely during that time are resisting returning to the office, forcing their bosses to reconsider how to move forward and use less water. That's the direct order to some people in southern California faced with an extreme drought. People there will be allowed to water outside twice a week for 8 minutes. It's 501.
34: Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Wilman. President Biden will address the nation at 7.30 this evening. He'll talk about his plans to push Congress to pass what he calls common-sense laws to control gun violence. His speech follows a string of mass shootings, including one at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, in which 19 students and two teachers were killed. New details, meanwhile, are emerging about the hospital shooting in Tulsa yesterday that left five dead, including the shooter. Beth Wallace with State Impact Oklahoma reports on the gunman's motive and how he obtained the guns used in the shooting.
32: Police say Michael Lewis was a patient of one of the victims, Dr. Preston Phillips. Phillips performed back surgery on the man last month. Afterward, Lewis called several times complaining of pain and asking for more care. Police revealed he bought the AR-15 just hours before the shooting, and he entered the hospital with a letter laying out his motive for shooting his doctor. Here's Tulsa Police Chief Wendell Franklin.
4: We have seen the violence that has taken place throughout the United States, and we would be naive not to think that that would not happen in our jurisdiction.
32: Police say in addition to Dr. Phillips, another physician, a receptionist and a patient were killed in the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Tulsa.
34: The head of NATO met with President Biden and top aides today as the Western Military Alliance weighs new responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine while confronting disputes within NATO. Turkey is still opposed to allowing Finland and Sweden to become members of NATO, both applied in response to Russia's assault on Ukraine. Meanwhile, pressure for a peace deal is growing as more countries that rely on grain from Ukraine fall deeper into hunger. Outside the White House, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says it's Russia's actions, not NATO's sanctions, that are responsible for that hunger.
8: The easiest way to uh, get more grain out and to uh, reduce the pressure on food prices is for President Putin to end the war and to stop the blockade and to allow uh, Ukraine to export grain.
34: Three Illinois lawmakers have requested an investigation of the federal prison at Thompson, Illinois, after reporting on abuses there by NPR and the Marshall Project. NPR's Joseph Shapiro explains.
3: Senators Dick Durbin, Tammy Duckworth, and Representative Sherry Bustos asked the Justice Department's Inspector General to open an investigation right away. There have been five homicides in two years at the federal prison in Thompson, Illinois. Their letter noted the findings of the NPR and Marshall Project reporting that corrections officers create violence by putting men together who, it should be known, will fight, and that guards use restraints as punishment, leaving men in shackles for hours or days. A spokesman for the Department of Justice said it will hold staff accountable for misconduct. Joseph Shapiro,
34: NPR News. Wall Street closed sharply higher today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 435 points. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's General Manager, Steve Poftek, says investigators are looking at human error as a possible cause for the crash last night on the Green Line. Two trains collided and derailed at government center station. No passengers were hurt. Four trolley operators were taken to the hospital. Three of the four have been released. General Manager Poftek says investigators have been looking at both equipment and technology.
30: Right now, the investigation has not concluded. We have not found any evidence currently that the signals were operating improperly.
0: Poftek says there's also no evidence there were any problems before the crash with the trolleys involved over the track infrastructure. The operator of the train that struck the second train does not have any prior violations. All four MBTA employees have been placed on paid administrative leave while the investigation continues. The city of Boston is putting on its party hat tonight. The city's hosting a public free viewing of the Celtics NBA Finals Game 1 with the Golden State Warriors on in San Francisco. Boston's viewing party will be at the Sam Adams Park at Fennel Hall starting at 9 o'clock. Massachusetts House and Senate have chosen six state lawmakers who will have the job of hammering out a compromise budget. The new fiscal year begins in less than a month. The committee of six will have to resolve differences between the House and Senate versions of the spending plan. The new fiscal year begins July 1st, but the budget is rarely approved before that date. When it happens, the state uses monthly stopgap spending plans to keep the government operating. Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston has completed an expansion of its emergency department. The seven-year-long project doubles the amount of square footage and adds 40 percent more beds. It also includes new trauma rooms and a dedicated area for behavioral health patients. The hospital announced the completion today. It says the expansion will reduce wait times and help address the recent uptick in the number of patients who have delayed seeking care during the pandemic. In the forecast, it is 57 degrees now. Clouds for another night and another day. Overcast tonight. Showers and fog right about the mid-50s. Clouds early tomorrow showers especially in the morning but some showers in the afternoon as well making it to the low 60s and then for the weekend beautiful as sunshine moves in temperatures move all the way up to the low 70s this is
18: WBUR it's 506 We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We begin this hour with new details about a mass shooting yesterday at a medical building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A gunman killed four people, and police say he then took his own life. Tulsa Police Chief Wendell Franklin said that the gunman bought an AR-15-style rifle and hours later used it to kill his doctor. Franklin says the police department is grieving.
4: And we pray. We pray because we all need prayer.
10: Chris Polanski is with member station KWGS in Tulsa and joins us now, welcome. Hi Elsa. So I understand that there were lots of new details at today's press conference. Tell us, what did you learn?
3: Well, we learned a lot that we didn't know yesterday. Tulsa police identified the shooter as Michael Lewis. They say he had back surgery last month performed by Dr. Preston Phillips, the orthopedic surgeon who he allegedly killed. Franklin says Lewis complained of pain after that surgery. He actually saw Dr. Phillips again just two days ago. Police say they found a letter on the suspect after the shooting, which made it clear he was targeting Phillips. Lewis allegedly also killed a receptionist, a patient, and another doctor. Franklin says the shooter then took his own life. One thing the police emphasized during the press conference is they were on scene and inside searching for the shooter within minutes of the first 911 calls. So a quick response without hesitation, they say.
10: And what can you tell us about the victim specifically?
3: So Dr. Phillips, the target, had practiced orthopedics for decades. A colleague described him as a consummate gentleman. Dr. Stephanie Hooson was a newer orthopedist, but was described as an extraordinary one. Amanda Glenn, the receptionist, had a supervisory role. Here's hospital CEO Cliff Robertson.
12: I mean, the three best people in the entire world that are the, you know, are the most committed to doing what they do every day and taking care of others didn't didn't deserve to die this way.
3: And the last victim, William Love, was a patient. Dr. Ryan Parker discussed treating him in the emergency room after the shooting.
16: We so wanted to be able to utilize our skills and training to save these precious
32: lives. To the family of Mr. Love, I'm so sorry we couldn't save you. We are grieving with you.
10: We mentioned that police said the gunman bought the rifle just hours before the shooting. Can you tell us more about that purchase?
3: That is right. They say he bought an AR-15 style rifle yesterday, just before the shooting, and a semi-automatic handgun on Sunday. And both of those purchases were legal. There's no waiting period in Oklahoma.
10: Well, as you've been talking to people there, how have they been reacting to what happened yesterday?
3: Well, some people are in shock. Others I talked to are sort of devastated, but unsurprised. There was actually another mass shooting this past weekend at a Memorial Day festival in Taft, Oklahoma, about 45 minutes from here one woman died seven people were wounded and you know the medical center where this attack happened saint francis is the biggest hospital in town most tulsans were either born there themselves or know people who were and it's a place people are proud of as far as elected officials so far it's a lot of thoughts and prayers republican governor kevin stitt has ordered flags to half staff Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum, also a Republican, said yesterday, now is the time to grieve, not talk about potential policy solutions to these mass shootings.
10: That is Chris Polanski with member station KWGS. Thank you, Chris.
3: You're welcome. Use
10: less water. That is a direct order to some people in the Los Angeles area starting this week. Reporter Aaron Stone joins us now from KPCC to explain more. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so I live in Los Angeles. I just got the email myself this week. Tell us what can I do and not do with water? So every resident
35: in the city of L.A. will be affected by this. And basically what it comes down to is you can water
10: twice a week for eight minutes at a time outside. Right. Okay. so I'm setting my timer. But can you just tell me, because I've only lived in L.A. for two years, how unusual are these water restrictions for, for California? Yeah, these are some of the strictest rules we've ever had.
35: Multiple water officials have told me that the severity of this drought has really taken them by surprise. And L.A. gets most of its water from Northern California, and the reservoirs up there are at some of their lowest levels in history.
10: So what happens if someone violates these rules? What happens to them?
35: So water agencies are being really clear that fines are going to be a last resort. They really want to educate the public before, you know, fining anyone for not abiding by the rules. So you could, you know, after multiple warnings, uh, education, you could receive fines of up to $600 if you violate the rules multiple times.
10: And what kind of reaction are you hearing from other L.A. residents about these new rules?
35: You know, Angelinos are pretty used to this. It feels like we're always in a drought. I know. Uh, <laughs> there's a bit of drought fatigue, but I do hear from people that they're willing to sacrifice. They really want to do their part. The question is how long and how much stricter can
10: rules get? Right. And what's the sense of the long term here? Like, is this the new normal? Do we expect the rules to get more and more restrictive going forward?
35: yeah so long term the climate crisis is expected to continue to make droughts drier and longer and many of our traditional sources of water won't be as plentiful in the future um, but Angelinos have internalized a lot of water saving habits already short showers turning off the water when you brush your teeth and many people have even invested in water saving technology at their homes that said if enough water isn't saved we could face a total ban of outdoor watering by fall wow all
10: right. That is KPCC's Erin Stone. You heard it from her. Thank you so much, Erin. Thanks, Elsa.
11: Okay. Should workers be forced to return to the office, even if they have successfully worked from home for more than two years? Elon Musk weighed in this week. He sent an email to his employees with the subject line, remote work is no longer acceptable. But it is far from a settled debate, as NPR's Andrea Shu reports.
36: Jonathan Pruitt was facing an agonizing decision. He's a geospatial analyst working for a Google vendor, a company called Cognizant. They're the ones who update Google Maps. They'd been told to return to the office five days a week starting Monday.
13: And if we don't return to office within three days, we'll be processed as abandoning our job
36: employees signed a petition asking for more time to figure things out and for medical exemptions for those who need them like others on his team pruitt joined the company during the pandemic and has only worked remotely and so
3: it's not making a lot of sense to us workers nothing will change other than you know having a couple snacks in our office and having an in-person meeting
36: which is not an advantage in his mind Pruitt likes virtual meetings. He says you can process data while sitting through them. In online trainings, you can share your screen rather than having everyone in a conference room looking at one computer. Then you add in COVID risks and the cost of commuting when gas is $5 a gallon.
3: We're kind of starting to think that maybe this job isn't worth it.
36: He wasn't sure if he was going to show up at the office on Monday. Then today came word that the company was giving them a 90-day extension. So crisis averted for now. Of course, working from home isn't possible in many jobs, but in companies where it is, the return to office has become a point of tension between workers and their bosses. Last month, Apple pushed back a plan to bring employees back three days a week after workers called it inefficient, inflexible, and a waste of time. Stop treating us like school kids who need to be told when to be where and what homework to do, they wrote. Meanwhile, other companies have started to rethink what is the office for anyway?
33: Good morning, everyone. My name is Naweet.
36: In Arlington, Virginia, it's onboarding day at Eagle Hill Consulting. A handful of new employees are in, getting IT training. And the marketing team has just had a photo shoot, so a few of them are in too. So did
18: you hire a local photographer or was it a Chicago photographer?
36: Jason Carrier, a consultant who's been coming in about once a week, says it's more people in the office than he's seen in a long time.
11: This is actually quite packed. There's probably about 20 people or so here today.
36: 20 people at a company that has 200-some employees. Now Eagle Hill has always embraced flexible work. Employees were never required to work from the office full time, but most did anyway.
11: Could I have worked from home four days a week before the pandemic? I think I easily could have. It just wasn't the environment.
36: People liked being in the office together. It's mostly 20 and 30-somethings here. They like the energy, the happy hours at the end of the day. Now happy hours have returned, and there are also virtual bingo nights, thanks in part to Carrier, who leads the workplace fun team. But the idea of working from the office all day, every day?
11: Probably very close to a deal breaker at this point.
36: Chief Marketing Officer Susan Nealon says she wants to see people in the office, but only when it makes sense. I view the office changing, so it'll be less
16: about the individual work getting done and more about the group work getting done.
36: Meaning you can do your individual work in the quiet of your home and show up for the team meetings as needed. And even on those days, you won't go to the office nine to five, you might go to the
16: office 11 to one.
36: An idea that would have been unthinkable just a couple of years ago, but here it's already a reality and it's proved to be a selling point for newer hires. Farah John Williams in HR and Alessandra Gonzalez in marketing say they wouldn't have it any other way.
11: It's hard to even fathom going into the office 100%. I don't think I could do it
17: ever yeah, again. <laughs> I completely agree. I would much rather have the flexibility yeah. than have to be a little tied down, you know.
36: No chance of them leaving for jobs with Elon Musk anytime
37: soon. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things
0: Considered, the Seneca language is one of hundreds of Native American languages that boarding schools try to abolish. Some Seneca people are still fighting to try and save their language from oblivion. That story is coming up.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig and Landmark College for students who learn differently with online dual-enrollment courses where high school students earn college credits. More at landmark.edu
0: slash online. Solid gains on Wall Street across the board today. The Dow jumped 435 points, that's one and a third percent, to close at 33,248. S&P grew by more than one and three quarters percent to close at 4,177. The Nasdaq added almost two and three quarters percent. To cut a two-day losing streak, it closed at 12,317. The last Howard Johnson's restaurant in America has closed its doors. The Hojo's near Lake George in upstate New York is available for lease. The first Howard Johnson's restaurant opened in Quincy in 1929 as an ice cream shop. Hojo's were known for their orange roofs, yummy fried clams, and 28 flavors of ice cream. It was the largest restaurant chain in the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s. The forecast is coming up.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. Dank weather through the evening, holding to the
0: mid-50s overnight. Tomorrow, showers likely until noontime. Clouds remain for the day. Temperatures in the low 60s. Sunshine over the weekend with highs in the low 70s. It's 520.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. cities with the highest inflation rates are not New York, not L.A., not any of the most expensive metro areas. Instead, the biggest cost of living spikes are in the southwest and southeast in places often considered affordable. As residents in those cities are learning, affordable is a relative term. Stephanie Stokes reports from Member Station WABE in Atlanta.
9: I meet Shaniqua Cannon at a strip mall east of Atlanta. It's 90 degrees outside, and she says it's too hot to talk inside the house, too expensive to run the AC.
2: So I'm actually shopping for an AC unit, a portable one.
9: We sit in a shady spot under a tree. Cannon tells me she's living at her aunt's place right now. She's been there since the end of last year. She moved to Atlanta from Miami six years ago. She was a high school English teacher with young twins and wanted cheaper rents. Did you find Atlanta affordable at first? At first, heck yeah. Miami would have like a 900-square-foot
2: place for $1,500. Or I can come here, get a house with a backyard,
9: and it's $1,000. Things started out great.
2: Until this last year, year and a half.
9: After the pandemic hit, Cannon quit teaching because in-person classes felt unsafe. She started doing some freelance writing, but it was a big hit to her family budget. Only her partner had a stable income. Then, the company that owned her home decided to renovate they offered her one of their other rentals.
2: I was like, okay, so I'll just try
9: to find another one of their properties. Everything was 1,500 and above. She found that was the going rate all over. Cannon was shocked. The rents had increased about 50% since she first got to Atlanta.
29: Rents and shelter prices are increasing rapidly here in Atlanta.
9: Brent Meyer is an economist with the Atlanta Federal Reserve. He says to understand inflation in the cities where it's highest, Atlanta and also Phoenix, you just have to look at the climbing housing costs.
29: Those trajectories in the Atlanta area are a lot higher than where they are elsewhere in the U.S.
9: So what's going on? Oleg Konstantinovsky is a broker with an Atlanta company called ProMove. It helps renters find apartments.
29: There
23: are so many people that have relocated to Atlanta.
9: He points to the pandemic and remote work opportunities. These new residents drive up demand, and that drives up rents.
23: If an apartment complex is, say, at 90 percent occupancy, their prices will be lower. But when they're sitting at 97, 98, they're going to maximize their costs
9: the home sales market looks similar. Buyers compete for listings and often pay above the asking price. But not everyone is complaining. For some new residents coming to Atlanta, prices here still are a relief. Hi, Hi. how are you? you Good, thank you. Yeah, well, Laurel Rosenberg lets me into her home in a northern Atlanta suburb. I notice you still have California plates. Uh, on all the cars, yes. <laughs> She moved from an Eastern Bay Area suburb last year with her family. Her daughter and son-in-law could no longer afford California and wanted to leave. Rosenberg sold her home for $535,000.
23: Looking at houses out here, I think we paid four thirty-five, And this one is literally twice the house on twice the property.
9: She and her daughter's family, including two grandkids, all live there. And the movement Rosenberg, who is 58, can retire with the cash left over from the sale of her California house. So that's California cash. California money makes it sound like it's a different currency. (laughs) It is a different currency. (laughs) Look at our power bill. (laughs) Way less than what it was in California. Rosenberg knows new people like her are part of what's making Atlanta more expensive for longtime residents. But she does plan to stay, so what's affordable for her may change too. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Stokes in Atlanta.
10: The Seneca language is on the brink of extinction. It is one of hundreds of Native American languages and cultures that Indian boarding schools sought to annihilate. Member station WXXI's Noelle Evans tells us about some Seneca people in western New York who are
32: fighting to save their language from oblivion. Jamie Jacobs began learning the intricacies of Seneca language in the early 2000s on the Tonawanda Territory near Buffalo. It was how he and his great-grandmother used to connect. Sometimes she would translate recordings of her father, his great-great-grandfather, singing.
29: It gave me a lot of deeper insight into, into the way that our ancestors understood the world. Um, and it's a little bit different than how we understood it growing up, even though we grew up as Senecas.
32: But there are at least two generations in his family who do not speak Seneca. It's partly a result of Indian boarding schools that Native American children were compelled to attend. There, students were abused and brutally punished for speaking their native language.
29: I do remember my great-grandmother telling stories because her brothers and sisters were sent to boarding school. You know, they were sent to the Thomas Indian School uh, in Kateragas. So that cut off this holistic way of, you know, handing down language.
32: Those acts of violence separated Indigenous children not just physically from their families, but emotionally and spiritually from their cultures. Cultures that are cemented in those very languages that were literally beaten out of young children. Today, the Endangered Languages Project says there are fewer than 50 fluent native Seneca speakers left. But that could change. For the last 20 years, the Tonawanda Seneca Nation office has been transformed into a part-time language school for children. About six years ago, that expanded into adult classes. The most advanced student here is Jaden Parker. In a way, he is fulfilling a childhood wish. I grew up with a lot of
29: older people, so they all spoke language, so I, I wanted to be able to speak
15: with them too. And and understand what they were saying, and then had them understand me as well.
32: He's trying to preserve the language in part by transcribing recordings of native speakers, including speeches by the late Chief Corbett Sundown. Sundown was one of the last fluent speakers of Seneca. He worked with a linguist to create resources to protect the language. Parker's teacher, Wayne Abrams, says one of Sundown's reasons was personal.
37: He says that he's recording all these things, he says, because what he thinks is that when he dies, that there's going to be no one to speak at his funeral.
32: Without the Seneca language, an entire unique worldview could be lost. Some ceremonies have already disappeared. For Jamie Jacobs, reconnecting to his heritage like this has led to unearthing moments in history that are, in a way, still alive today.
29: There's words for things we have that our ancestors didn't have 200 years ago. So we didn't have coins, but we have a word for a coin, oista.
32: Jacobs had come across that word in a Jesuit dictionary from the 17th century. He found that oista was already the word for fish scale.
29: So our ancestors had to descale fish, and they used fish skin for different things. So now when I say the word for oista, I don't just picture a silver coin. I picture a fish scale, and I picture my ancestors descaling fish, and I picture them doing all these things. And that gives me a lot of pride, and it gives me a lot of inspiration.
32: Each word he learns comes with a deepening sense of connection to himself, to his community, his ancestors, but also to the world at large.
29: I think that if more people just understood our language, you know, even just have a general sense of how it works and how we think, well, then I think more people would be more open and fascinated to learn about who we are.
32: Through Seneca language, Jacobs has found continuity with a way of life that was taken away from him and others. For NPR News, I'm Noelle Evans.
11: And this is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up tonight at 7.30, NPR's live coverage of President Biden's address to the nation on gun violence and gun legislation. We will rejoin all things considered at 7 o'clock tonight and then go to President Biden's address at 7.30. Present the broadcast of On Point at 9 o'clock. And at 10 o'clock tonight, it's open source with Christopher Lydon. He speaks with professors and cultural analysts Cornell West and David Bromwich on school shootings across America. In the forecast, overcast skies tonight and tomorrow, nighttime lows in the mid-50s, tomorrow's highs in the low-60s, sunshine over the weekend in the low-70s. It's 5.30.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Grammy-nominated Skylark, presenting Sergei Rachmaninoff's Vespers. The audience favorite is back tomorrow through Sunday. More info at SkylarkEnsemble.org and Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. I'm Tisiana Deering. Tomorrow
10: on Radio Boston, one of the great monuments of the Civil War is on the Boston Common. It recognizes the Union's first all-volunteer black regiment, the 54th. That monument has just been rededicated with new music to honor it. The composer and a historian tell us more. On Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. As President Biden prepares to address the nation on the latest spate of gun violence in the United States, House Democrats are finalizing the details of a series of bills that are designed to tighten the nation's gun laws. Speaking on the House floor today, Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler took aim at his Republican colleagues who have criticized the latest effort to pass stricter gun measures.
22: My friends, what the
4: hell are you waiting for? You say that none of the solutions proposed here will stop gun violence in America? Well, there, sadly, I agree. This bill will not alone save every life we will lose to gun violence this year, but it will save
27: some.
25: The bills include a proposal that would raise the age limit to purchase some semi-automatic rifles to 21 years old. Another would establish a federal ban on assault weapons. Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the House will vote on the package next week. Funerals continue for the victims of last week's mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas. As NPR's Laurel Walmsley reports, 19 students and two teachers were killed when a gunman opened fire in a fourth-grade classroom.
5: On this day, three of those killed in their classrooms are laid to rest in Uvalde, where the shooting has left residents in grief and anger. Eliana Torres was 10 years old. She was both silly and nurturing, her family says. She loved to play softball and make people laugh. Nevaeh Elisa Bravo had the same birthday as Eliana. She is survived by two brothers and a sister, as well as her parents. Miranda Gail Mathis had just turned 11. Her family says she was a smart and shy tomboy who loved unicorns and mermaids. Eighty miles east in San Antonio, hospitals continue to treat five people wounded in the shooting. Laurel Walmsley, NPR News, Uvalde.
25: At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 435 points. This is NPR News.
5: This is 90.9
0: WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Another higher education leader in Massachusetts is stepping down. UMass Amherst Chancellor Kumble Sabaswamy said today he will retire next June. He's led the school for 10 years. More than a half dozen local university presidents and chancellors have announced plans to leave their posts since last summer. They include the leaders of MIT, Tufts, UMass Lowell, and Worcester Polytech. Chelsea police have arrested a teenager they say brought a handgun to school today. Phoenix Charter Academy officials say the school was placed on lockdown after the staff saw the gun and confiscated it. Officers were called and removed the student from the school. The school says the student did not make any threats. Somerville leaders say they aim to end drug overdose deaths once a so-called supervised consumption site opens in the city. WBRS Martha Biebinger has more.
7: Somerville is in the process of choosing a location for a clinic where people addicted to drugs could use while monitored by health professionals who could reverse an overdose. Last night at a community forum, Mayor Katiana Ballantyne described a, quote, vision zero, where the city stops losing 15 to 20 residents a year.
8: A vision towards comprehensive services, public health solutions, and most of all,
9: a future with zero fatal overdoses.
7: Two supervised consumption sites in New York City have been open for six months with no overdose deaths. A bill that would let Somerville proceed is stalled on Beacon Hill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: Tourism in Maine appears to be a little bit off so far this season. The number of cars traveling through the Maine turnpike tolls over Memorial Day weekend was 7% lower than the same weekend in 2019. That's according to the Portland Press-Herald, which says record high gas prices and uncooperative weather likely played a role. The forecast is coming up.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity. Arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23. Walnuthillarts.org.
0: 57 degrees now. Clouds hold on through the night tonight. Temperatures staying just about where they are right now, maybe a few degrees lower. Morning showers tomorrow, then a lot of clouds. Highs in the low
37: 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
11: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
10: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The 18-year-old man accused of killing 10 black people at a Buffalo grocery store was in court today. He entered a not guilty plea on charges of domestic terrorism and first-degree murder. Michael Rosiak of member station WBFO was in court today for that arraignment. He joins us now. Welcome.
22: Good afternoon. Thank you.
10: Thank you for being with us so can you just first tell us a little more about this domestic terrorism charge
22: well this is a relatively new statute in new york state it's only been on the books for about uh, two years and this case is the first that will apply those statutes a conviction on first degree domestic terror as a hate crime could mean automatic life in prison upon a conviction And that's just uh, one of 25 counts. There are also 10 counts of first-degree murder, 10 counts of second-degree murder as a hate crime, three attempted murder counts uh, for those that were shot and wounded, and also uh, a criminal weapons possession count. Uh, The district attorney in this case says although the gun used in this shooting was legally acquired, it was illegally modified, and that's where that charge applies.
10: Okay. And I know that the defendant, he appeared in person in court today. What what was the atmosphere like in the courtroom? Can you talk more about that?
22: There was a feeling of tension. There was a higher than usual number of officers and security. Uh, there were many family members of the victims in attendance. I could not see from my vantage point if any of uh, the shooter's uh, family members were in the court, but there were definitely family members of of those killed on May 14th. And uh, at the end of the proceedings, one of the uh, the women in attendance uh, was overcome with emotion. She could be, you know, heard loudly sobbing. Uh, masks are still required in the courtroom. So you couldn't really understand what it was she was saying uh, while sobbing. Uh, and also with those masks on, uh, while the, the accused is, was, was in an orange uniform, um, he was still covered with a mask. So all you could see is eyes. You couldn't really see any facial expressions uh, during the proceedings.
10: Hmm. Well, this mass shooting, you know, it happened just a couple of weeks ago. And of course, the country's already seen several other mass shootings since then. How are people in Buffalo holding up as you've been talking to them these past several days?
22: They are still hurting. There's still a mix of of hurt. Of anger, of frustration, and of course, uh, further exacerbated by the fact that other mass shootings have have happened since uh, the last of the funerals of the victims only occurred only over over the, the Memorial Holiday weekend. So uh, it, the Buffalo is just finally you know, getting to bury their dead, and only really now. Uh, when the shootings happened, there was a, a large swarm of national media who came in. And once they had left, only then did the community really get a chance to really begin to mourn and, and begin to to process what was going on, to be to finally be able to grieve the losses that have hit their community. Uh, there are, are further complications. The supermarket where this attack occurred is the only full large supermarket in that neighborhood for for many many blocks around and as long as that supermarket remains closed that was the only source of, of fresh produce of, um, of of baby items and, and other critical needs for for many people in that neighborhood and uh as long as that supermarket remains closed uh that further complicates what's already a reputed food desert in in an east side neighborhood in in the city of buffalo
10: that is Michael Rosiak of member station WBFO in Buffalo, New York. Thank you so much, Michael.
22: Thank you for having me.
11: California wants to be a sanctuary state for abortion. That is in sharp contrast to nearly half the states in the U.S. that are expected to ban or restrict abortion care if and when the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. From member station KQED in San Francisco, April Domboski reports.
16: On the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, state lawmaker Buffy Wicks became the first woman to tell her own abortion story on the floor of the California Assembly.
5: Staying on a friend's couch, unemployed, and facing an unplanned pregnancy was a vulnerable
16: time in my life. Wicks was 26 at the time. She went on to work for Barack Obama for six years, then later won her seat in California's legislature. She's now 44 and has two young daughters.
5: Having an abortion was an empowering decision.
16: One that I have never regretted. Then one day last September, she was preparing lunch at her kitchen counter when she felt a sudden wave of severe cramping in her abdomen. And she started bleeding a lot. She rushed to her doctor. Turns out I was pregnant and having a miscarriage. And she said, we need to do an emergency abortion procedure. This was all happening right after Texas banned abortions after six weeks. Wicks asked her doctor if she would have been able to get the procedure she had just received if she lived in Texas. And she said, well, legally, yes, because the pregnancy wasn't viable. But in
5: reality, there is a chilling effect across the state of Texas right now where doctors are scared to perform these procedures.
16: If Roe is overturned, California is anticipating a 3,000 percent increase in the number of people coming from out of state for abortion. That's why WICS is now supporting a package of 13 state bills designed to care for them.
5: We're ensuring that we as a state are ready to accept the potentially 1.4 million
16: women who will come to California to seek safe and legal abortion and that we're prepared for that. One bill that's already been signed will eliminate co-pays for abortion. Planned Parenthood attorney Lisa Matsubara says other bills would provide more funding and training so clinics can expand abortion services.
1: By increasing staffing, increasing appointment slots, expanding and building new facilities.
16: Other bills are focused on legal protections. That's because the Texas law allows members of the public to sue anyone who helps a person get an abortion. And other states are looking to do the same. California wants to stop that. To
5: really protect not just patients, but also
16: providers from any attempts by other states to reach in and penalize folks in addition to more patients coming from out of state, California is also expecting more anti abortion protesters from out of state. Some have already come here. Just a few weeks ago, a convoy of trucks drove to the Bay Area. A stream of semis and pickups sporting American flags parked outside Buffy Wicks' house to protest her support of abortion legislation. Couple men shouted into their bullhorns.
30: This is a direct assault on humanity.
16: Wicks' neighbors did not welcome the convoy. One woman with long neon yellow nails gave them the double finger. Go home. Other people pelted the trucks with eggs. Go home. Go home. Go home. Nearly 80% of Californians believe Roe v. Wade should not be overturned. Buffy Wicks says she's not slowing down. In fact, she and her colleagues are looking for ways to speed up their work of making California an abortion sanctuary for all. For NPR News, I'm April Demboski in San Francisco.
10: Investigators are trying to piece together what went wrong when police were called to the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas.
4: They're going to look at whether or not the leadership in place knew what they were doing, whether or not they actually took charge of the event, they gave proper instructions, and law enforcement responded and, in fact, saved lives, right?
10: Tomorrow, tune into Morning Edition for more on how this investigation will unfold. Turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The war in Ukraine is affecting almost every aspect of life in Europe, including sports. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley sends this report from the French Open.
31: Stefan Gurov, CEO of a sports management company, cheers on one of his clients, Women's World number 67, Varvara Gracheva, who's Russian. Gurov also represents Ukrainian players. He says it's difficult as the war has created tensions in the locker rooms. As a players management company, you know, we're not into politics, you know. Our duty is to stay behind your players, support them, wherever they come from. He says tennis, like soccer, has been especially affected by the war because both have widely watched international events. Russian and Belarusian athletes have been allowed to play at Roland Garros under strict neutrality, no flags, no anthems. But Wimbledon, which starts later this month, has banned them. Racheva's coach, Jean-René Lysnard, says she's only 21 and she left Russia for France five years ago.
17: She's trying to do her job as good as she can, you know. It's just a shame for these players to be linked to that, you know. If uh, we would penalize every American players or French players or any country every time there is a war, some players will never play. (laughs) Right?
32: Hey, hi, thank you. I'm so sorry I've just finished practice and I, uh, I came to the room.
31: That's world number 80 Ukrainian Diana Yastremska, who's left Paris now and is playing in a grass court tournament in the Netherlands to prepare for Wimbledon. The 22-year-old had to flee her home in Odessa. She says playing in the French Open was difficult.
18: You try to be focused
32: on tennis, but you can do that only when you're on the court behind you all the time, putting your focus on the news, and you're always trying to go sleep with some thoughts about the peace, and you wake up with very bad reality.
31: In an interview broadcast on French television at the start of the French Open, Yastremska called on Russian players to denounce the war. Since the invasion, only one Russian player has reacted, writing no to war across a camera lens at a tournament in Dubai in February. Researcher Luca Aubin wrote a book about Russian President Vladimir Putin's use of sports as a geopolitical weapon.
22: It's very difficult for a Russian athlete to be against the war because sports is patriotism in Russia. If you are against the war, you are a bad Russian you are a traitor."
31: Fans at the French Open are divided. Wimbledon is wrong because these players are not on their national team. They're playing as individuals, says Imad Mechtoum, so punishing them is unfair. But German fan Jürgen Platz says Wimbledon got it right.
3: This is okay what the English guys do with these Russian guys. I would do the same, exclude them as long as the war is
12: running.
31: Ukrainian player Diana Yastremska says maybe it is hard for Russian players to publicly denounce the war because of Putin, but they could at least acknowledge Ukrainians suffering in private. I think they could make some kind of meeting uh,
9: between all the Russians, Belarusian and Ukrainian players, at least something, you know, but they don't do anything.
31: Yastremska says seeing the war at home and having to pretend like nothing is wrong in front of Russian players abroad is unbearable. She, too, believes Wimbledon made the right move. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up
0: on WBUR's All Things Considered, Hacks, the HBO Max show about a younger comedian helping a comedy trailblazer freshen up her jokes. You're part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's happening Tuesday, June 7th at 8.30 a.m. Get details at WBUR.org slash openmeetings.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live now through Sunday. Tickets at bostonballet.org and summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu slash summer. It's game one of the NBA Finals tonight for the Celtics and Golden State Warriors.
0: Tip-off time is 9 o'clock. First two games of the best of seven series are out in San Francisco. The series then moves to Boston for games three and four next week. The last time the Celtics were in the NBA Finals was 2010. And the Celtics will get a chance to start tonight in their uh, 18th NBA uh, game. As we said, we have more on that coming up on WBUR. In the forecast overnight tonight, cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid 50s, tomorrow showers likely until noontime. This is WBUR.
4: WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required, restrictions apply and the ICA, with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant, figurative paintings. ICABoston.org.
3: I'm Scott Tong. Tim O'Donnell quit his teaching job to become a filmmaker, but he never thought his first project would be a documentary
13: about his father's traumatic brain injury. You don't want this, obviously, to ever happen to anyone, but in some ways it was a project that any filmmaker would want to make. That's next time on Here and Now. Tomorrow at noon on
3: 90.9 WBOR, Boston's NPR news station.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
3: And I'm Ari Shapiro. The
27: show Hacks is an intergenerational comedy about two comedians. Deborah Vance, played by Jean Smart, is a trailblazer in a rut. Ava Daniels, played by Hannah Einbinder, is hired to help the older woman freshen up her jokes. The first season of Hacks won three Emmys, and season two finds the women on a tour bus workshopping a new stand-up set all over the country.
20: Could I maybe take out one of your creams from the fridge just to store something temporarily? Absolutely not. Okay, sorry. It's just looking for a spot for my kombucha. Kombucha doesn't need to be refrigerated. It's made in a bathtub. Well, actually, if it's not kept cold, it'll keep fermenting in the bottle and it can
10: explode oh god fine here give it to me thanks oh Mm. you're right it did explode
27: one of the creators of hacks jen Statsky, told me the writing team had a term for the dynamic between deborah and ava dark mentorship
28: so it isn't as pure as just one person or the other person always inspiring the other it gets they hurt each other in in many ways it wouldn't be realistic if they were just two perfect people, you know? And so that that was very that's very much in the DNA of the show as well.
27: Deborah clearly believes that women of her generation could never have made it in the entertainment industry dominated by men unless they were as tough as she is. Do you think that's actually true in real life?
28: Um, as far as Deborah and and women who came up during Deborah's time, yeah, I do think she needed to be, you know twice as tough and twice as undeniable to get half as far. Um, I just think that the rules were very, very different for, for women like her. And there what you weren't allowed, you know, to show vulnerability the way other um comedians were, which is which is in fact means that Deborah and women like her were doing comedy with such a handicap because vulnerability is such an important part of being a comedian. <laughs>
10: I wasn't a great mother. I missed my daughter's first steps, but I made it up to her.
28: That was the reason she did 12 more. And what makes comedians interesting, I think, you know, in the show, we we see that Deborah's material really starts to click the more vulnerable and honest she is.
27: So this season puts Deborah on tour and she's trying to perfect a new stand-up set after having played yes. the same old jokes in Vegas for I decades. Always remember and there's the this scene where she and Ava are sitting at a bar Their and they have a conversation where Ava tells Deborah I thinking, to trust like, the process.
37: That's a good philosophy, you know?
20: Like every game, win or lose, it's just part of it. You're on the
37: path to something bigger so the individual setbacks don't get you down.
27: And I think that every commencement speech so in- just includes a version of this advice.
37: Trust the process
27: but when you've got something to lose, it's a whole lot scarier
28: yeah for sure i mean deborah in that moment is is particularly scared exactly because of what you're saying is that she hasn't really had something this high stakes in a long long time she's reached a level of success that a lot of comedians reach where she could kind of just coast she could just find a way to do the same old material and do these you know big shows that bring in a lot of money but she wouldn't be leveling up to a new creative stratosphere for her but in do in trying to do that, it's really scary. It's really hard. And I and I do think that, you know, one of the things we set out to do with season two was kind of do as faithful as we could a depiction of what the creative process is like and how difficult it is. And you know, a lot of it is sitting in a room with people just going, What about this? And you follow down a path for hours and hours. And mm. then you're like, Well, that was absolutely nothing. Okay.
27: Yeah. In so many ways, this show feels like a love letter to a generation of women comedians who maybe weren't celebrated in their heyday as much as they should have been. And some of those women are no longer with us, but others are. Have you heard from them? Have they talked to you about this show?
28: Yeah, one of of the greatest things about the show is that we have heard from these um, female comedians and artists who are, you know, massive, massive influences to us, you know, people like Rosie O'Donnell or Wanda Sykes or, uh, you know, Susie Essman. We wanted to make the show for women like that. We wanted to honor women who have been doing what they do so well for so long and maybe haven't been celebrated or certainly haven't been celebrated as much as they should. And then we were very touched by the idea of how many women coming up in comedy or the arts because it was such an unwelcoming place for them didn't get to tell their story, didn't keep going, because the path was so difficult and made so much harder for them,
27: so. Which is also part of the story that you tell in this season as well, when Deborah Vance runs into somebody who was coming up at the same time as her.
35: Wait, wait, why would you retire after that?
18: Well, I just found out that I was pregnant and um,
17: I saw the sacrifices you were making to have your daughter on the road. And
18: I just had this vision of the kind of person I have to be in order to make it.
28: We very much so wanted to highlight that. Women who had to make a difficult choice whose stories we didn't get to hear.
27: Hmm. Out Magazine put six LGBTQ members of your cast on the cover and called Hacks one of the queerest shows on television. The foundation of the story does not hinge on a premise that is necessarily queer. Uh, so was the show's queerness part of your original concept? How did that become so integral to the story that you're telling?
28: It wasn't something we set out to say, oh, and and this will be a, a queer show. It, it wasn't designed like that. What it really was, was wanting to depict this character, Deborah Vance, and her ecosystem very um, honestly. And I think that someone like Deborah and in history women like that have become such important figures in in the queer community. And we just felt that she would naturally be surrounded by characters who happen to be queer. For our show, you know, the idea was just to always depict the world as we see it and as we want it to be. And, and our world is full of wonderful queer people who are, are living their lives. and 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 so that was kind of just the intention behind that.
27: I know creating the show is a team effort, and it has many people's fingerprints on it. Is there a moment this season that you particularly are especially proud of, something <laughs> that is your baby that you point to and you just feel um, joy?
28: You know, it's it, it really is such a collaborative process. I know, much- I know, I
27: know.
28: <laughs> <laughs> um. There's a Lori Metcalf has a line in episode three about she's
27: so great. She plays the the tour manager who goes by the name weed
28: weed. Yeah, (laughs) weed. Exactly. She's incredible. But she talks about going to Burger King for the burgers, McDonald's for the fries, and Wendy's for, for the shakes. frosty. Yeah, yeah as, as a one complete meal. And I do feel like that is like the the perfect fast food meal. <laughs> that's uh, you, that, that is your gift to that's, this season. That, yeah, that's my <laughs> gift. That's my high art uh, gift to Hacks season two.
27: Well, we are grateful for your contributions to comedy and to fast food. Jen Statsky, Emmy-winning creator of Hacks. Thank you so much.
28: Thanks for having me.
27: Season 2 is out now on HBO Max.
11: This is NPR News.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination, by River and Ocean. Offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences, on board and on shore. Viking.com From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
0: This is WBUR. Showers off and on through the evening, sticking to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, showers likely up until noontime, then clouds for the rest of the day. Highs in the low 60s. It's 5.59.
18: WBUR supporters include Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director, Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Queen Elizabeth is celebrating 70 years on the throne and at age 96, she remains hugely popular. Her heir, Prince Charles, not so much.
17: A lot of people have ridiculed him over the years. I think it's gonna be a very hard act for him to follow the queen and would be very hard for anybody.
0: Considering a future King Charles coming up, this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, new questions about police response to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas after one of the teachers called her husband, a Uvalde school police officer, after she had been shot. She later died. And housing advocates in Massachusetts say federal pandemic relief funds could go a long way in fighting homelessness.
8: It is the largest single infusion of funding for supportive housing specifically that the Commonwealth has received. So that alone is a game changer.
0: It's six oh one.
34: Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. President Biden will take the rare step tonight of an evening speech from the White House. He'll speak to the nation about mass shootings and gun violence. As NPR Scott Detrow reports, the address comes a day after yet another mass shooting in the U.S., this time in Tulsa, Oklahoma.
13: Biden delivers remarks from the White House all the time, but evening addresses, when more people are generally paying attention, are rare from presidents, and they're usually reserved for major crises or events. A year and a half into his presidency, Biden has given just one about the COVID pandemic. The White House says Biden's speech will focus on the string of high-profile mass shootings, including the murder of 19 fourth graders and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas. He'll urge Congress to pass what the White House frames as common-sense gun laws, something Biden himself has conceded will be tough given the even split of the Senate and Republican opposition to gun restrictions. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House.
34: The House of Representatives, meanwhile, is working on legislation that would raise the age limit for purchasing a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21 years old. The bill would also make it a federal offense to manufacture or possess large-capacity magazines. Those allow a shooter to fire many times before needing to reload. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the measure should be sent to the Senate next week, where it's expected to be blocked by Republican lawmakers. The 18-year-old white supremacist who allegedly murdered 10 people in Buffalo last month has pleaded not guilty he faces 25 counts, including domestic terrorism. NPR's Quill Lawrence says more. Peyton Gendron live-streamed himself shooting people in a predominantly black neighborhood neighborhood grocery store in East Buffalo on May 14th. A grand jury indicted him on hate crimes including 10 counts of murder, attempted murder, and illegal possession of a weapon. That last charge is for modifying an assault rifle to carry more bullets. A judge ordered him held without bail. Prosecutors say the 18-year-old drove several hours to commit the crime and left an online trail of bigoted rants against Jews and black people. The final funeral from the shooting was last week. 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield is survived by children, grandchildren, and her husband of 68 years. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York. The payroll processing company ADP estimates that U.S. employers added just 128,000 jobs last month. That's less than half the number that other forecasters have been predicting. The federal government's official job count for May comes out tomorrow, and as NPR's Scott Horsley reports, other signs suggest the labor market remains unusually tight. Job openings at the beginning of May were down from the previous month, but there are still about two job vacancies for every unemployed worker. Layoffs are rare, as employers struggle to keep the workers they already have on the payroll. New claims for unemployment remain at historically low levels, with just 200,000 people applying for benefits last week. On Wall Street, meanwhile, stocks finished up. The S&P 500 closed up 75 points. NASDAQ finished the day up 322 points. The Dow Jones up 435. You're listening to NPR News. This
0: is 90.9 WBURM Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Game one of the NBA Finals between the Celtics and Golden State Warriors is tonight in San Francisco. It's the first time the Celts have reached the final since 2010. And fans can watch the game outside at Fanel Hall in Boston tonight. The city is providing a big screen TV that will allow several hundred fans to watch together. Daniel Lander is senior advisor to Mayor Michelle Wu.
11: First come,
26: first
6: serve to get the best seat, but it's a nice spot. There's a lot of great room to get a perfect angle to cheer on Jalen Brown and the whole
0: team. The city hopes to host viewing parties for each game of the series. Meanwhile, the ticket reseller StubHub is reporting that seats for the first Celtics home game of the finals are already selling for an average of nearly $2,000. That game is next Wednesday at TD Garden. Angel Calderon of Roslindale says he's planning to watch the game from home, but he's hoping his wife remembers his birthday's coming up.
15: My birthday's on Saturday, so who knows, maybe I could get some tickets if I'm lucky enough, right? If you're watching this or hearing this, you know what they're me for my birthday now.
0: <laughs> the Celtics game tips off tonight at 9 o'clock. Boston authorities and utility crews are investigating the cause of two explosions in manholes downtown in Boston this morning. A woman was taken to the hospital with burns. The explosions caused smoke to billow out of the manholes, shattering the window of an office building on High Street and forcing people inside two buildings to evacuate. Boston fire officials say elevated carbon monoxide levels were found in those buildings. All four trolley operators involved in a collision on the Green Line last night are on paid administrative leave while the MBTA investigates the cause of the crash. The T's general manager says all four drivers were hurt and one is still in the hospital. No passengers were hurt. WBR's Walter Wuthman caught up with the riders to see how they're feeling this afternoon about the second major collision on the Green Line in a year.
26: Green Line service between North Station and Lechmere resumed just before 2 this afternoon. Tyrone Innes was waiting for the train at Lechmere to go to Heath Street. He said he felt a bit nervous boarding the trolley after hearing about last night's crash.
27: I feel okay. I'll, I'll be cautious. I'll be Maybe I'll just sit down and not, not worry about standing up. Normally I just stand up and, and, and ride, but I'll, I'll be more conscious about what's going on.
26: The T is undergoing a federal safety review after a train dragged a passenger to his death on the red line in April, and the driver of a Green Line train rear-ended another train at high speed last summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: The forecast overcast skies tonight and tomorrow. Nighttime lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow's highs in the low 60s. Sunshine at last over the weekend. 57 degrees now in Boston at 6.07.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Abe and Ida Cooper Foundation commemorating Fred Cooper by supporting public radio programming that highlights issues including diversity, racism, equality, anti-Semitism, and sexism.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
10: In Uvalde, Texas, we continue to learn new details about what
11: happened inside Robb Elementary School after a gunman entered a fourth grade classroom and killed 19 students and two teachers last week. We are learning today that one of those teachers called her husband from inside the classroom after she had been shot. Her husband is an officer with the school district's police force. It's a detail raising yet more questions about the botched law enforcement response to this shooting. And for more, we're joined uh, from Uvalde by NPR's Adrian Florido. Hey, Adrian.
12: Hi, Mary Louise.
11: Hey, okay, tell me more about this phone call. This is from a teacher inside the classroom after she had been shot.
12: Right, from uh, Eva Mireles. She was one of the two co-teachers in this classroom. And after she was shot, she called her husband, Ruben Ruiz, who is an officer for the Uvalde School's police department. Uh, at some point, he was outside the school, but he couldn't get, it, get in. Uh, and we now know, of course, that neither his wife, Miss Mireles, nor her co-teacher inside that classroom, Irma Garcia, survived the shooting. Yeah.
11: Do we know what she said in this call?
12: Well, I've been speaking with people close to these families, uh, and they tell me that Eva Mireles called her husband and told him that her co-teacher, Irma Garcia, was dead and that she had been shot and badly injured and that she needed help immediately.
11: Uh, I mean, it's such a sad detail. Explain why this is such an important detail, though, for the investigation.
12: Well, it's yet another example, Mary Louise, in this string of them that we have now, of of these pleas for help that were coming from inside uh, these classrooms. Because aside from this call from Eva Mireles, there were 911 calls from children inside that were coming into 911 for about an hour. And what police have said about their response to this shooting is that the officers outside the classroom waited about an hour before moving in and killing the gunman because they didn't realize children and teachers were at risk inside. Uh, the incident commander who held officers back was Pete Arredondo, he's the chief of the school district police force. So now there's this question, how did he not know that one of his officers had gotten a call from his wife inside? Uh, and how w- was he not learning about these 911 calls that were coming from inside the classroom?
3: How
11: was he not learning about these 911 calls? I mean, what, what are officials now saying about that?
12: Well, the various police agencies that responded to this shooting are basically saying nothing now. They've, they've sort of shut down. Uh, but today we heard from a state senator, uh, Roland Gutierrez, a Democrat, that the information that was coming in from these 911 calls was being communicated not to the school's police chief who took command of this incident, but instead to the Uvalde City Police Department.
13: 911 calls were being received by a different entity. I felt that that was important enough to know here, not because I want to blame that entity, There was error at every level.
12: There's still a lot we're trying to find out, Mary Louise, about why this communication broke down.
11: Yeah. Uh, The official story just keeps shifting and shifting. What are you hearing from families of the victims?
12: Well, these shifting stories are are infuriating families. Uh, I spoke with Angela Cordova. Her son was in the school and made it out alive, thankfully. But her nephew was killed. And she said that these shifting narratives are making it hard to grieve.
14: I'm like lost at words that I don't even know where to start because I don't know to blame the UPD. I don't know to blame the first responders. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just like lost. I have a lot of hate and I have a lot of anger because these kids should be living their life.
12: This is a small town, Mary Louise. So many of these families are related by blood and marriage and a lot of what they're learning about what happened inside is coming from the children who survived.
11: And Piers Adrian Florido in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you.
12: Thank you.
10: The United Kingdom is celebrating Queen Elizabeth's seven decades on the throne. The Platinum Jubilee runs through Sunday, and it may be the most that Britons see of their monarch in months. That's because at 96 years old, she's been retreating from public life and leaving more of her duties to her heir, Prince Charles. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London.
15: Today, Prince Charles stepped in for his mother, inspecting the troops at the Queen's official birthday parade, known as Trooping the Color. It was part of a generational transition that has been in the works since at least last year. There's just one problem. While the Queen remains hugely popular here, her son is not. Yesterday, I walked around the lawns near Buckingham Palace gauging opinion. Anna Coughlin was sitting on a blanket, having a picnic with her mother and three young children. How do you feel about the Queen?
7: She's a treasure, isn't she?
15: (laughs) I'm curious, how do you feel about Prince Charles?
16: Um, he's all right, yeah. (laughs) will be a bit weird. He's not as charismatic as she is, you know, because she led the country through so many huge things. Charles is nice, and I think he's got good attitudes to sustainability and the environment, but he's sort of second fiddle to her. So, (laughs) I think he's super old already.
15: (laughs) Indeed, Charles is already seventy-three. Anna Coughlin's views are pretty representative. About 80% of Britons see the Queen positively, according to polls, while only about one-third want Charles to become king. Many people remain unhappy with Charles because of how he handled his first marriage. Max Hastings is the former editor of Britain's The Daily Telegraph and The Evening
6: Standard. The legacy of the whole Diana catastrophe, um, it does go very deep. And the image that Diana passed on to the world about the Prince of Wales is not a very attractive image. It was. image? it was an image of a very selfish quirky weird man who couldn't understand for the life of him why he was expected to give up his long-term mistress just because he would married a young girl after charles married diana he maintained an affair with his old flame camilla parker
15: bowles who was also married as diana once put it there were three of us in this marriage so it was a bit crowded the couple finally divorced in 1996 prince charles married camilla in 2005. The prince does have many supporters. One is Sue Dowse. She pitched a tent yesterday near the palace to ensure a view of today's parade. Dowse cites Charles' long environmental record. The prince has embraced sustainability, biodiversity and organic farming for decades.
6: A lot of people have
17: ridiculed him over the years, but actually when you look at some of the things with his environment, he was really right at the forefront of some of that. I think it's gonna be a very hard act for him to follow the queen, and it would be very hard for anybody.
15: Many royal analysts say Prince Charles should make the environment the signature issue of his reign. That could help keep the monarchy relevant and connect with younger generations who view the institution more skeptically. Last fall, the prince addressed the Global Climate Change Summit in Glasgow.
6: The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how devastating a global cross-border threat can be. Climate change and biodiversity loss are no different. In fact, they pose an even greater existential threat to the extent that we have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing.
15: But when the Prince has expressed some of his views to British officials, he's been accused of trying to influence government policy. In the 2000s, he sent private memos urging officials to, among other things, reverse spending cuts on homeopathic medicine. He also requested funding for his own Afghan charity. Some thought he violated a fundamental
6: rule that the monarchy stays out of politics. Again, Max Hastings. There's nothing wrong with any private individual wanting to uh, support homeopathic medicine, but it was obviously completely constitutionally wrong for the Prince of Wales to use his influence in this way. Dominic Grieve served as attorney general and defends
12: the prince. I think the letters he was writing were absolutely in the public interest. They were expressions of his view based on his knowledge. And, And it's important for ministers to have that. It wasn't telling
15: ministers what to do. The prince's critics worry he could become what they call an activist king which they say could undermine the monarchy at a time when it won't enjoy the goodwill and public support that it has under the Queen. Frank Langford, NPR News, Buckingham Palace.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, big plans for federal pandemic relief dollars to be used to help Boston fight homelessness. That's coming up.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington's Common Ground Revisited. The Pulitzer Prize-winning classic comes to theatrical life. Now through June 26th, HuntingtonTheatre.org. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at SunbugSolar.com. In business, major gains on Wall Street across the board today. The Dow jumped 435
0: points, one and a third percent, to close at 33,248. S&P grew by more than one and three quarters percent to close at 4,177. The Nasdaq added almost two and three quarters percent to cut a two-day losing streak. It closed at 12,317. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. It's 617.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. sevencom slash WBUR. And Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See available menus and order online at volantefarms.com.
0: Join us Wednesday, June 15th at WBUR City Space for a celebration of cephalopods. Hear from marine experts and meet a real live octopus. You can get tickets for this Science Friday event at WBUR.org slash events. 57 degrees now. This is WBUR.
4: WBUR supporters include Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at MassCulturalCouncil.org.
0: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. People who work to fight homelessness in Massachusetts say there's never enough housing to go around. Now a group of advocates and service providers wants to make sure the state gets a big boost in supportive housing, from federal pandemic relief funds. Late last year, Governor Charlie Baker signed a nearly $4 billion relief package into law. The money is coming from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act, known as ARPA. It includes $150 million for permanent housing with support services. Much of that will be for people who've been homeless or are vulnerable to housing insecurity. WBR's Lynn Jolliker tells us about efforts to make the money
14: make a real difference. The ARPA funds can go a long way in the fight against homelessness, according to Christy Staples.
8: It is the largest single infusion of funding for supportive housing specifically that the Commonwealth has received. So that alone is a game changer.
14: Staples is a vice president at United Way of Massachusetts Bay and Greater Merrimack Valley. She leads a loose coalition of more than 70 social service providers, advocates, developers, and philanthropists. The group is working to develop a plan to scale up permanent supportive housing for people experiencing homelessness in Massachusetts. That's housing where case managers help tenants connect with services including mental health treatment, job training, and budgeting. Staples says the coalition asked for the ARPA funding for supportive housing and wants to make sure there's a vision for it so it has the greatest possible impact.
8: Without a strategy and really looking at the population that needs the housing and where the gaps are, we are not actually being strategic in ending homelessness. And it is a piecemeal approach for pockets of intervention that is not a comprehensive strategic approach.
14: One of the coalition's first priorities is to collect data on homelessness and housing need. Staples says the group wants to come up with a clear number of permanent supportive housing units that should be built in each region of the state. As of 2020, Massachusetts had about 8,600 units for unaccompanied adults who've been homeless and more than 1,700 for families coming out of homelessness. Staples says the state likely needs about 1,800 more supportive apartments for adults who are chronically homeless. The estimate for other populations, including families and youth, isn't clear. Social service leaders have long said they want a plan from the state to create a robust supply of permanent supportive housing.
8: I would say we've been able to accomplish a lot, but it did take a coalition to come together to say silence is not an option here.
14: No one from the State Department of Housing and Community Development would do an interview for this story. But a spokesperson says the agency has had an annual round of funding for permanent supportive housing developments since 2014. And early in the pandemic, it asked for innovative proposals to convert buildings such as motels or hotels into supportive housing. Advocate Joyce Tavon says providing some funding for individual projects isn't the same as creating a proactive statewide plan. Tavon is a policy director at the nonprofit Massachusetts Housing and Shelter Alliance. We have an enormous crisis. We have such a housing crisis, such a scarcity of supply. Tavon says an increase in street homelessness during the pandemic shows the state and every community need to break down barriers to housing development. People came from all over the region to a huge tent encampment near Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard in Boston, or Mass and Cass before the city cleared it out and got many people into treatment and housing.
33: We are dealing with a humanitarian disaster. Absolutely, we saw it with mass and caste, but it's happening in other places, smaller versions of that encampment. So we need the state also to assist with how do we get municipalities to ease up on their restrictive zoning and not leaving it just to the kind of homeless service-slash-housing
14: provider, like, you go figure it out. Here's how the ARPA funding breaks down. $15 million is targeted to housing for people who've been living outdoors or in homeless shelters. $50 million is for supportive housing for people, including families, who are chronically homeless. $65 million is dedicated to affordable housing with services for those who fled domestic violence or human trafficking, or our State Department of Mental Health clients or seniors. The final $20 million will go towards supportive housing for veterans.
13: You can see we're going right down to the ground, right down to the studs, and we're rebuilding it.
14: John Yazwinski is president and CEO of Father Bills and Mainspring. The South Shore nonprofit shelters and houses people experiencing homelessness. The organization is about to finish converting a Brockton hotel into 69 units of permanent supportive housing. The state funded the project after putting out that call for innovative proposals in 2020. Yazwinski says more providers can create housing like this with the right resources and guidance in place. But, he says, that's just the beginning. They have to keep the housing going and keep tenants
13: stable. We've never had this opportunity. Having the capital, having that ARPA money is great, but we still need to see a commitment from the state about, like, how are we going to have the operating money and how are we going to have the services? As great as this project is, we were still begging the operating subsidies and we got it and we're piecemealing the services from a variety of funding sources. The state
14: says this year it funded services to turn 200 existing housing units into supportive housing. Meanwhile, Yazwinski points out the 69 new units in Brockton make only a dent in the need. He says for every five people who move out of his organization's mainspring shelter, six people come in looking for a bed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker.
11: Events over the weekend have prompted a new look in Israel at how it should handle Jewish extremists. That uh, is from Sunday, the chant there, death to Arabs, it rang out from nationalists marching through the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem's old city. They went on to harass and assault Palestinians who live there. NPR's Daniel Estrin witnessed this. He is in Jerusalem and joins us now to talk about whether Israel might take new steps to control these extremists. Hey, Daniel.
21: Hi, Mary Louise.
11: I want to hear a little more. I want to understand more what exactly you saw on Sunday.
21: I saw groups of Israeli teens roaming the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. They assaulted Palestinians. They taunted them. I also saw some Palestinians curse at Israelis, too. Yeah. And that was for hours, even before the flag parade began. I then saw tens of thousands of Israelis marching through an area that's usually a bustling gathering place for Palestinians. There were all kinds of people, mainly fairly mainstream Orthodox Jewish groups, um, chanting religious songs. But then, the most common chants that I heard were death to Arabs, mayor village burn, um, an insult of the Prophet Muhammad. I saw a lot of t shirts with rifles inside Stars of David. I watched a mob lurch at a Palestinian video journalist, try to grab his equipment. Reporters from the BBC were also assaulted, too. And these are the kinds of scenes we see. Every single year when this march takes place, last year there was so much consternation and threats of violence from Hamas that the, the march was actually canceled, but it was too late. Hamas launched rockets and the Gaza war began. Huh.
11: Well, so that prompts a question. If, <laughs> if last year a war began, and I know in years past this march has sparked violence, why did Israel allow it to go ahead this
21: year? The Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett says he did not want to give in to threats from Hamas this year. He said it was important to demonstrate Israel's control over East Jerusalem, which is predominantly Palestinian. He considers the parade on Sunday a success, no deaths. And he said that the ugly scenes were the work of a small minority. He ordered police to prosecute people. In reality, police only arrested two Israelis that day. Israel is now singling out two far-right groups as being responsible for the extremism.
11: Yeah, I was going to ask how organized this is. Who are these two far-right groups?
21: Well, they're both anti-Arab groups, and the most prominent one is called Lehavah, It's a group that's against romantic relationships between Arabs and Jews, Uh, a lot of teens in this group. The defense minister is saying that these groups should be outlawed, but there have been calls to outlaw these groups for years and Israel has not. So, you know, Palestinians and Israeli liberal groups say that the government does not take Jewish extremists seriously. Israel, of course, points to Palestinian extremist groups, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, which have committed deadly attacks on Israelis. And Israel says Palestinian officials have not done enough to rein them in. But, you know, Palestinian property is vandalized. Israeli settlers in the West Bank attack Palestinians. Very few prosecutions against Israelis.
11: Hmm. And this is a big question, but what is fueling this extremism?
21: There are bigger trends in Israeli society. Um, The far right is represented in parliament. Uh, They conflate Arab citizens, 20% of the population, frequently with terror. And I spoke to the former foreign minister in Israel, Shlomo Ben-Ami, and he said what we saw on Sunday was not just a couple of extremist groups.
22: I am ashamed. I am ashamed. Jewish supremacism, this is what it is.
11: I
3: think it is a direct representation of Israeli power. I have no doubt about it.
21: Now, Mayor Louise, I should let you know that there are Of course, Israeli groups trying to do the opposite and promote reconciliation. There was a group handing out flowers to Palestinians the day of the march in Jerusalem. And, you know, I heard one story recently about high schoolers that were from a Jewish Orthodox high school shouting at Arab elementary school kids in a public park, calling on them to leave the country. And you know what? The Jewish principal came to the Arab school, apologized, and sent the kids on a free trip to the zoo.
11: And Pierre's Daniel Estrin reporting there on so much complexity in Jerusalem. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome.
0: Coming up tonight at 7.30 on WBUR, NPR's live coverage of President Biden's address to the nation on gun violence and gun legislation. So 7 o'clock, you'll hear All Things Considered at 7.30, President Biden's address. And at 9 o'clock, tonight's broadcast of On Point. At 10 o'clock, it's open source with Christopher Lydon. This is WBUR. We're
4: funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling, with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com.